What's up, everyone? This is Shragam, and I want to welcome you to the 24th episode of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. We close out the year 2020 with a banger. We will be hearing from Tony Verzura of Blue River Terps. And get ready for this one because Tony drops a bunch of knowledge and we talk about a wide range of things from meeting Dr. Lester Grindspoon to making designer dabs from deconstructed rosin. So definitely stay tuned for that. This interview, as well as the 12 other interviews that we've produced this year, would have not been possible without the support of our community on Patreon. These amazing people have not only believed in the platform, but they're the reason that the platform is still around. And I'm super thankful to each and every one of you. We always like to reciprocate the love to the community, which is why for the month of December, we didn't take any contributions from our current members as a small thank you. So if you like the podcast and you've been curious about what's on the Patreon, like the Patreon exclusive web series, the community chat, and early releases of Coffee and Donuts with Adam and Resin Talks, this is a great time to join because December is on us. You can sift through it and see if it's for you. Visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish i n n or visit the link in our instagram bio as always a huge shout out to our sponsors rosin evolution who again you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on their instagram at rosin evolution 100 if you've taken care of resin for say three months gone through the trouble of caring for it preserving it freezing it washing it and drying it as well as possible why then would you not use the best rosin bags when pressing it? Yes, I agree the term best is subjective, but in this case, let's consider what it takes to be the best rosin bag. A high quality rosin bag that's reliable, precise, and affordable. Rosin Evolution makes their bags out of the highest grade nylon possible. Their micron measurement is precise. They hold up during the squish. You can ask around about that one. And they're affordable. Their wash bags are literally the best deal on the market and you sprinkle in their great customer service and their speedy shipping, and you got the best rosin bag company in the game. So visit them at rosinevolution.com for all your rosin needs. Your resin will thank you. To make it even more affordable, use the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI 710, to save 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. Shout out to our homies Pele Polare, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at Pele underscore Polare. They are thermal jacketing specialists. They can make thermal jackets for you in almost any size, in almost any color. They can customize it with your logo. And more importantly, Pele Polare's thermal jacketing systems help keep your water and hash at a steady temperature while cutting your ice spill. It's been nice seeing so many hash makers rocking their gear recently, including Hash Legend Nicotee. So if you want help in battling condensation while you wash, whether you hand stir or machine wash, or whether you have a washroom or not, their thermal jacketing systems will do the job. So visit them at pelepolareco.com and use the savings code THI, standing for the hashish in, to save 5% on your entire Pele Polare order. Last but not least, shout out to our homies Low Temp Plates, who you can visit at lowtemp-plates.com or on Instagram at lowtemp.plates. If you're looking for a rosin press, Low Temp Plates V2 systems are the best value in the high-end rosin press market. They're made of high-grade materials, made in the USA, 
designed with modularity in mind, allowing your system to grow with you if you choose. And on top of the quality, they offer you peace of mind with a lifetime warranty, making it the last press that you'll ever need to buy. So visit them at lowtemp-plates.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire low temp plates order, which can be a nice chunk of change on a rosin press. Again, use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% with low temp plates. And lastly, I'd like to shout out Manifest Destiny Seeds, who you can follow at Marilyn underscore Masher for hooking up some of our patrons with seeds throughout the year. Thank you for listening, and I certainly hope you enjoy episode 24 with Tony V. I'm extremely excited to be here with Tony Verzura of Blue River Terps. You can follow him on Instagram, personally at Verzura2, that's the number two, at Blue River Terps with an S, at Advesa Wellness, and at BlueRiverTerps.com. Welcome, Tony. Thank you for carving time to talk out of your busy schedule. Thank you today. So I uh, just wanted to start kind of on a personal note and congratulate you and your wife. I know that you recently reached your first uh, year anniversary <laughs> and you got to take a little much needed time off, I'm imagining. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like that was uh, probably more important check mark in life is to, if you're fortunate enough to find somebody that you're compatible with and you can fall in love. I think it helps helps you in your journey and shape you as a man to find that, you know, if you're fortunate enough to do it. And I was able to do that, get married. And I definitely feel a lot different after being married and after one year in. Yeah, I'm sure, man. I'm curious, like, if you feel like it brings any balance, like, are you a workaholic? It kind of seems like you're working all the time. So. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I am a workaholic and it does bring me balance. Um, She's somebody that works with me as a partner though too. So I don't think I'd be standing where I am today without giving her credit in the sense that when we first met, she's like, you're like somebody that has a really good pizza shop, you know, one of the best pizzas, but the lines around the block and you just want to make pizza. And it's like, but everybody outside is like really upset because they can't get to your pizza and it, there's a, it's like either expensive pizza or I can't get to the pizza. So how do we like help you, you know, scale this up in the, in, in, in your vision? So she's a, you know, cannabis business consultant that did like decks and standard operating procedures and business plans. And so she was the one that planted the seed in my head to, you know, develop techniques and technologies and take the things that were in my head and try to license them out to different operators. And it's always okay to be your own flagship, but how do you like take these ideas and turn them into things that other operators and other territories can, can take. And so it forces you to like really hone in your skills and your craft and like kind of finish the chapter you know, like, okay, I'm done inventing and r and Ding. I have to get to the end of this chapter of this particular product. You know what I mean? Right. So she's helped me take that vision and, and standardize it so that I can work really hard, but be able to not like work the 16 hours or 24 hours and try to get, be able to work smarter, not harder in that same 
10, 12 hour day and be able to enjoy family time or like take weekends or be able to, you know, spend time, you know, with people. Yeah, I saw, you know, digging around through your post that you said you've been working about 100 hours or so a week for the past, I don't know, what was it, 10 years? <laughs> yeah, it feels like that, yeah, at least. And you, in part, credit that for being where you are right now. So can you talk a little bit about how all that hard work you feel has paid off and, and where you feel you are right now? Yeah, so I feel like, you know, I'm 42, and when I was 30, there was, no, there was a new adventure, you know, and that was, hey, let's enter this Colorado market when it was just medical. I started as a caregiver. I started as a grower in 96. So trying to help people, you can only go so far in your own basement, in your own house, and you yourself only have so much access and knowledge and information to certain tools and things and experience. And so in the last decade, um, my dad always kind of told me that like, if you want to master something, focus on something uh, 80 to 100 hours a week for 10 years until you can master that craft or that trade or learn something and truly like get to that level. And I don't think I really understood it until I did it. And what that does is it really allows you to just like hyper-focus on different skill levels, but at the same time, everything is R&D and you're learning everything you can. And so learning bud structure, calyx structure, trichomes, trichome structure, formations, what's, what information is being carried by the plant and how did it get there? And what were the steps from A to Z from the, from the time it was a seed to the time it's an extract that is being consumed. And I always put myself in the experience of the consumer because I'm a consumer first and a patient first. And so I was never satisfied enough for that end result. I always felt like things were still a work in progress. And I feel like for the first time, especially in the last year, it took like 10 years of grinding and trying everything and trying to find your lane and R&Ding and trying to use what's in the industry, what's out of the industry and just failing a lot. and taking a lot of steps backwards and a couple steps forward. But at some point, you kind of have that breakthrough moment and you're like, okay, I feel like I truly understand a lot about what's going on to where I can hone in and craft and really start to create and then start doing like signature moves, you know, and start doing these like more interesting things and take it to the next level. And then I think, I think I'm just starting now. So everything you've seen in the last decade is just a, is been a, is to get to this point. And now I think it's going to get really interesting because now once you understand, you know, uh, how to capture, preserve, and purify the experience and authenticate the experience, it's not like, well, what can we do now? You know? And so the, that's where it's kind of brought me to. Yeah, and it makes me think of the quote that you have on your Instagram by Einstein, imagination is more important than knowledge. You know, so would you say like you kind of were saying towards the end there that by having this really strong understanding of all these things that you've learned in the past decade, now you're able to take that and use your imagination to, in essence, play with these things. 
So almost uh, maybe, maybe a little of both, a little of both, because I think my imagination, I imagined a lot early on and like where things were going to be. And I imagined this because in the nineties I was cultivating and growing like early nineties or sorry, late nineties. And I got an early start at 16, you know, into this. And I just, I remember telling my mother, like when I was in college, she's like, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, I want to, I want to cultivate cannabis, uh, medical cannabis for like, for the government. At that time I said the government, but I also want to, you know, grow weed for like super famous people. And she was like, you're so lost. I don't know what to do with you. (laughs) And so I feel like early on, my imagination was like Jimi Hendrix. I was like, I couldn't keep, I was just constantly thinking I could never sleep. So the imagination and, and, and like what could be done, I just never stopped thinking. And I think that imagination and what we could do from terpenes and different things that was the driving force and the knowledge was learned along the way. And sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad, but now we're kind of, now I think it plays into what you're saying. It was sparked with imagination, get, get the knowledge and the experience. And then now that we tie those two together, it can now go to the next level of what can we achieve with that imagination? Right. I'm curious if you could talk about the experience of meeting Dr. Lester Grindspoon, because, you know, obviously, as you know, he passed away earlier this year and I saw you make a post about having the opportunity to meet him and how he's kind of influenced your work. So could you tell us a little bit more about that experience and then also what his work has meant to yours? So I don't think I would be where I am today without those seeds of what could be or like the, or, or the philosophy of, of behind where it started. And in the nineties, I'd have to say that his books and the literature that's out there um, that he was part of, he's got some that he co-authored and some that he was the author of. And essentially he's kind of one of those, individuals that legitimized and broke down the stigma at first. So obviously I was into Mel Frank, Robert Clark, you know, different individuals that wrote books, Jorge Cervantes at the time, like we all absorb grow books, hashish, you know, different books. And that's really good information. And you should soak up that information, especially the ones that Robert Clark did, right? Volume one and volume two. But with Lester, Lester and Dr. Grinds, sorry, Dr. Grindspoon, he's somebody that was the first in the medical community in that Harvard Cambridge community, the mainstream medical that was a part of that Alamada, that 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 circle that stepped outside and from an intellectual standpoint said, Hey, there's a plant here that has hundreds of compounds that has tremendous amount of potential from a medical standpoint. He was smart enough and intellectual enough to recognize, you know, we have natural herbs and medicinal herbs and all the pharmacopoeia, and it has stemmed from some kind of plant-based medicine that has then been isolated and synthesized 
into a drug. And most people don't realize that all the drugs that you take, they're synthetics and they're just synthesized versions, not even organic versions, but synthetic versions of compounds that stemmed and derived from a plant. And so early on, writing about the potentials of cannabinoid therapy and understanding that there's phytocannabinoids, that the plant's alive and has these raw cannabinoids and abundant compounds um, that we barely even studied because we were hyper-focused, again, on the negative adverse effects of what active THC in the version of inhalation does on groups of animals, monkeys, humans, and they were spending lots of money uh, in the government and, and the mainstream you know, uh, medical community that was being funded from these grants on finding these adverse negative effects. So he was kind of the first person that came around and said, well, it is a plant. It is of this species. It does have all of these compounds have, that are also found in fruits, vegetables, herbs, other essential oils. And you start looking, overlaying all of those compounds into nature, and you realize that this plant has a tremendous amount of those compounds in this flower. And so the discovery of those compounds and the thought of what could happen with those particular uh, compounds, phytocannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, what could happen when you start pairing those particular compounds with the receptors that we are identifying in our mind and our body. And when you start looking at CB1, CB2, and the other receptors, we've identified around, I think, 31 of them. And we realized that this plant interacts with this particular receptor system that controls homeostasis and helps keep our mind and body in balance with our, with our spirit, essentially. And when you start looking at that, this was the first individual to come around, write about it, inspire others about it, and plant those seeds of imagination, if you will. And so I've spent the last decade working towards realizing that dream that he once had and wrote about. And I feel like the credit for that um, is very special. And I was able to, when I was able to meet him, he was interested in the powderized like vegan capsules and the different ratios and what I was doing with terpenes. And I presented all these different ratios and compounds all in an organic format, all mechanically done, um, being able to grab these expressions and tell him that, you know, this is like his inspiration is where these products came from and how it was, um, how it actually would, uh, you know, like interact with these different conditions and also with Ethan Russo you know, and other scientists that have written out there. And I kind of explained, like, once you put the information of, say, Robert Clark, the information of Ethan Russo, and the information of Dr. Lester Grindspoon, and you put it all together into an extractor that's hyper-focused on making these particular products, these were the outcomes, and showed him everything, you know, even the little uh, seed battery from ABD and the new car and, and things like that. And I think, like, there was this really cool moment and connection. Um, he even tried like one of the sauce carts, um, nice. you know, and at 90 something years old, I was, 
I was like, this guy is super cool. And uh, his wife was there. And so, you know, it was a very cool moment where she's like, you're doing what? I'm like, I just wanted to show you what was going on. And, you know, I wanted to uh, leave you some samples and show you that like from just reading your book and literature from this many years ago, more than a decade, it's 20, I guess 20 years now, right? More than 20 years. More than 20, yeah. Yeah, 20 years. Yeah. He was, it was one of those moments where I'm like, I'm thinking here, well, I read your book and then this is what I've been doing since. And he's like, you know what I mean? It was like this really cool moment where I was like, right. I was just that alone, that moment alone was like, I don't know. It was like something I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, that's very cool. And you know what I found interesting about what you were saying in regards to presenting him with this information and reading his books earlier, you know, in the nineties is having the idea of being able to target specific things with the different compounds in cannabis. And like you discussed the ratios and maybe the, uh, you know, whether it's active or non-active and and the combination of, of all these things. So on that note, you know, you mentioned Colorado earlier and I've heard you talk about working for several years, seven days a week, almost no days off seeing patients. So can you discuss how that experience allowed you to, I guess, further understand cannabis and specifically what's found in the trichome? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, um, I call those the early days, the 2009 to 2014. That's the early days of the industry when it was all medical and the concept of adult use didn't really exist yet. And we were all caregivers transitioning into what we saw then as commercial cannabis, pretty much commercial cannabis. Now there's industrial, you know, there's like such large levels, but transitioning from, you know, three lighters, six lighters, 30 lighters into 300 lighters is where we were at in the 2009 to 2014. And everybody was learning and everybody was coming up with new innovative ways to extract and new genetics at that time. Um, I felt like I tried to, at that time I was from the grow and then I moved to the, we were forced, Colorado vertically integrated us. It forced us to be vertically integrated, I think for the first time. And so I tried to formulate and build a team that I thought at the time was the best of the best in the industry. And still a lot of those people exist and they probably still are the best of the best in the industry and respect to all of those that work together with us. I hope that they feel that I did everything I could to promote them. And I tried to look after the best interests in what was happening. And sometimes there were hard decisions for myself, but I always felt like if it wasn't right for me or if it wasn't a quality thing, then it probably wasn't right for them either. And so I'm one of those people that pivot really fast. And so I pivot with information the same way. And at that time, we were able to get our hands on different CBD genetics. It was the first really high CBD at the time. There wasn't really any solventless CBD. And so we relied on butane extraction, BHO, butane hash oil, 
We were working with a sour tsunami strain. It was the first like three to one. And it ended up being the very first High Times CBD concentrate award that they ever gave out. And that was, I feel like it was a really good moment. I think a lot of people would say that even that worked on that project, whether they like me or not today, because <laughs> uh, you know, this industry is funny like that. But like, I think that if they look back, those were good moments. We, we, we had discoveries. We changed the game of how things once again was perceived. And most importantly, we affected people's lives in such a positive way. Once we flipped the script on THC and we were able to start really start building profiles with CBD being the dominant, and we started to see significant, profound effects with patient lives from epilepsy, autism, nerve damage, trauma, injuries, opiate addiction, tumor growth, skin cancer, you name it. It was like all of this information was coming. And so I went from you know, uh, the retail productizing to once we started kind of putting things into, at that time, a form of a uh, concept or product. We just had like syringes and oil, you know, and we were trying to like productize the concept or at the time. And all we, all I could do is take data. And so at that time, it was like, what could I get that was THC? What could I get that was CBD dominant base? What do, do I have CBD sativa, CBD indica at that time? There was all these different, maybe three or four parameters. And the patient's gave me the data and patient driven data was key because I learned about titrating saturation points. I learned about CB1 and CB2, the different ratios and different things that were affecting. A lot of it were notes and then it got into more of a a structured program. And I really wanted to meet people every day because I felt like the most rewarding part was meeting with patients, trying to help them. Some people saw that as like a weird Thing, like I'm not a doctor or like I'm a charlatan or some bullshit. You know, it's like at the end of the day, I was trying to help different people find solutions without getting high and give them relief. And we started very basic and very low dose and got feedback every week from patients and adjusted every single week. So I think looking at how the current healthcare system works and doctors work, I feel like I was doing a really good service. And inside, I feel like I represented everybody that was making those products the best that I could, you know? And so that data absolutely was critical from 2009 to 2014. Again, valuable stuff. Like it wasn't a monetary thing for me in Colorado. I mean, I left negative in, from a financial standpoint, it was the worst years of my life. But from a character building and information and data driven, it was the best years. And you mentioned some of the things that that data revealed. Can you give us a little bit more on that? So I'll give you some information. So like, remember, everybody was like, oh, CBD is really good for epilepsy. And so what we found, what I found was there's five different conditions. You know, my best friend suffered from a slow growth tumor and had these had epilepsy and seizures his whole life. And so no one could figure it out, had to have brain surgery, um, lots of medication. Thank God he's okay now. But for all our, adult, all of our kid life from zero to like 
19, this is what he struggled with. And for, for at that time, when we were talking about epilepsy, um, and before GW moved into the space and we we're all not allowed to talk about it anymore. <laughs> um, ideally, yeah, like once they came in the United States, then they kind of put the kibosh on like just different data and information, but I could give you what I know and it should help a lot of people, especially now. Um, I found that THCA was a good rescue in the sense that raw THCA while someone was having a seizure could actually help stop them and CBD could help regulate them and help them and help those patients quickly overcome the, uh, the post epilepsy and post seizure, uh, attack. So if somebody had a very hardcore grandma seizure, it takes them days to recover. And so CBD would help with that recovery and CBD would help regulate how many there were, but THCA would actually help uh, stop them. And so if you have these different, if you have a slow growth or if you have drop seizure or if you have night seizures or you have induced seizures for different things because of other medications they're taking, a balance was found. And that balance that I found that worked really well was a three to one ratio or four to one ratio where CBD is active and is the dominant and THCA is the next number. So CBD to THCA, those two paired together during the day, whether it's in a liquid sublingual or in a capsule, felt like the liquid sublingual is better. And in the liquid form in a sublingual, it's better because it's uh, able to absorb faster and interact with the central nervous system a lot faster. And doing something with CBD and CBN uh, at night for recovery and for being able to kind of control any night terrors and anything else that sometimes would come from it. Because there's always kinds of side, other medications and side effects and different things that people aren't thinking about that affect people's sleep. And sleep is extremely important for the body. And so I found the combination of these two worked really well. And um, this is the kind of data as an example out of one type of patient group that I would spotlight as an example to share. Yeah, that's cool. And have you been able to keep access, I guess, to that digital landscape, let's call it? So I feel like in the transition of adult use to the medical, or sorry, medical to the adult use, um, in those years, I kind of got involved in another company that uh, took some of these ideas and patented them. And it's hard to focus on, you know, when you make lots of claims of how to use cannabinoids and sequencing in, in receptors and these different things, it's hard for any company to focus on that. So even if it went to like Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer, they'd have to spend a billion dollars to get an FDA approval on that particular combination of what I said. Um, it would take 10 years, you know, it'd probably end up getting synthesized, um, nothing of which that like I'd want to subscribe to. And it's just when you have like a lot of ideas and in that first group, I had a lot of uh, the patent landscape of what that looked like. The methods of use of that is a lot of information. And so ultimately when people ask me like, why did you patent that? Look at it from two, two folds. I tried to patent information because it becomes public, number one. 
no one said you couldn't access the information and, and look at those programs and try to help people. You know, it's up to those companies that have control of those patents if they're going to enforce it or not. And I'm not part of that particular company and I'm not part of that data collection anymore. And so um, it's just information that's out there. And so uh, it's not like I'm out there encouraging people to go take all that data and go make their products, but I don't think anyone's going to come knocking. Um, (laughs) So I did it because I felt like this was a novel idea. How do we, how do we categorize these? um, How do we categorize these cannabinoids and terpenes and ratios sort of like guitar theory or music theory? You know, you've got all these notes but how do we create the theory behind them, at least the baseline? And so whether products got made or things got taken all the way to the nth degree, I felt like the information needed to get out there. And so now it's kind of taken me a few years to get to the next version, like the, the v version 2.0, which is Advesa, and kind of take those concepts and patents and ideas. And actually, now that I've gone through the solventless side, like, how do I do it mechanically? How do I get all of this stuff into version 2.0? And so now that I was able to get the product lines um, to where I wanted to with that, which is the next kind of chapter in my life, it's now let's go back to the roots and go back to um, helping um, those in need through the adult use uh, model, which is now anyone who's 21 and up can access it and we can discount it and we can... Um, scale this up and we can provide the same type of products or better products and the same type of patient care if we choose to. And so that's kind of like I was against the adult use market until like I was forced to really get into it because I was really on the medical side for so long. And then I just finally realized that it just means access, means more access to people. And if you can make a product on the medical on the adult use side for adult wellness and medical patients that was affordable and better get it out there. And so that's now I'm going to get back into how we do that. And so today people are a little more sensitive with data and having EHRs and clouds um, and patient portals and things like that is a whole nother undertaking. And so I kind of have a different approach to it these this time around, which is taking programs that are working for people and making them open source. And so with Invasive Wellness, I'm going to start um, putting out recipes of how to use these capsules in with synergistic uh, recipes like uh, smoothies and other foods and all organic and raw foods and putting information out there and putting out programs that others that are using that may work for you where it's not like a nurse or doctor collecting your data but you should just have a whole access of information. Like what is somebody using on this, this, their daily cannabinoid uptake and what are they using for these conditions? And, you know, leave it like an open, open source, open message board and allow it to organically build upon itself through people because it's sort of like build a guitar, show people how to play songs and that these songs to be played, but let's teach you also how to play the guitar and let's see what you can do with, with the guitar itself. Right. You know, switching gears a little, but not leaving Colorado. When I first heard about you, I think likely it was through hash church. And then you came on strong with the terpene 
uh, isolation. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that and is it something that you continue? Because, you know, it was all the rage for a while. It seemed like people, including myself, bought, you know, vials of Blue River Terps and were adding it to hash or to rosin. And it doesn't seem to be as big as a, of a thing now. Good question. You got all the bangers here. <laughs> all right. So this is a very good question. I can remember when I first started with like Jibs and Ken Wall and the concept and idea of adding terpenes back into hash. This wasn't even rosin at the time. Irked hash makers. It didn't sit well. It was a reintroduction. And I remember the resistance for a while from a lot of people, growers too, and everybody. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm just, if we can extract the terpenes and we can boost the terpenes, we can kind of boost the modulation effect. They weren't into that. And so there was a couple awards that were won that like terp rosin, we started making rosin. And I was kind of looking at it, well, A, the flavor of the aroma is one thing, but it's really the effect. How do we boost the effect? Because if I'm going to take X amount of into my lungs, I looked at terpenes as volume and it's like modulation effect, right? It's like I could play music at, at the two, but I really want to go to 11, you know, like spinal tap and like take it all the way. And so I looked at it as like, if it's the same terpenes from the same single batch, what's the problem? Um, and people didn't like it. And they felt like sometimes that was like cheating or anything else. And I said, okay, if you give me a pound of weed and I make X, Y, and Z from that, and we both started with the same thing and my product ends up with 10 or 15% terpenes and I didn't do any chemicals or manipulate what was already there, I didn't really see the problem. That was in 2013, 14. So that's like tells you where it was at and people had problems with it. And the tech wasn't there all the way. And so at that time, it was like steam. We we're trying to steam in different ways. Um, cold trapping never was a thing. A lot of people thought it was like, hey, he's cold trapping. I don't even know. Like, I don't know where that got started. But like, to be clear for people that aren't super like familiar yeah. or techie, the cold trapping would be basically uh, taking the turps that are coming off like a freeze dryer or something of that sort. Yeah. So, that, yep. That, so it's a little different because back then there wasn't like we weren't freeze drying. Right. And so like this would be more like cold trap is when the terpenes at that time were being captured by a couple individuals or at least one maybe that was, I didn't really know about it at the time that I later found out. But that was like a way of being able to capture the head gas or the terpenes under a closed loop system from an extract. So for those that don't understand that, like basically if you use BHO or ethanol, let's say you use BHO extract or CO2 first pass extract, and you then um, use distillation, most people that has a bad name, but really it's just vacuum and thin film wipers and steam. So it's controlled vacuum and spreading the oil and making it thin and being able to clean up the uh, impurities in that oil. And all of the terpenes that come off of that are volatile gases that can be trapped in like a cold finger. So if those terpenes pass through like a really negative cold area, 
they freeze and then they drop. And so people were doing, and people still do that. There are brands out there today that make distillate carts or different things, cold trapping. And so I never did that. That was, I was always grabbing terpenes from the actual flowers. And if you ever smelled our terpenes, you'd be like, this smells exactly like the flowers. So early on days, it was, how do we extract the terpenes from the buds? And it started with steam. And I publicly was on Hash Church. And this, that idea was also planted from Bubble Man at the time, kind of a challenge, if you will. He was like, I challenge you uh, and Horatio to go figure out a way to pull these terpenes from these flowers. And we both went in our own separate corner. And I think it took me a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, respect to Horatio. And he recently passed and everything. And so this is how old school this is. It's like the first hash church was Bubble Man, myself, Johnny B, Horatio. So it was a group of people from Canada and myself. Well, it started early on days. It's like I'm in my pajamas and I'm eating because it was always Sunday morning. And I was single at the time. And (laughs) it was always hours of talking. And we had all these rules, you know, mute your mic, don't eat on. It was like all these like funny rules that developed. But the information that, uh, that sparked from that, in my opinion, Hash Church, in my opinion, with the different guests and people that came on, progressed the solventless industry forward big time and so you know whatever people want to say the guests the information the how-tos the things that were being done on hash church and probably still are to this day i haven't checked back in on it in a minute they helped shape the industry i don't really care where you sit with it it, it did and i was a part of that i feel proud to be a part of it i think the that they challenged a lot of us and we learned a lot of things about CO2 and butane and water, um, the, the subject matters and the things that we did and the scientists uh, that came on there and how far we explored it, you know, like hats off to Mark there, the platform and the information progressed us. And so um, on that platform, that was the first time the terpenes kind of came out. We met in Barcelona. There was some, uh, like parties and terps and stuff were done there. And I discovered early on that like different methods didn't work. And I specifically put out there steam distillation terpenes cause oxidation. They hit temperatures in which uh, will, will, uh, you know, boil off terpenes as I've discovered terpenes from 72 degrees to 107 degrees will evaporate. And so um, you're losing terps with each degree and you know water boils at 212 or whatever so it's like you're just crushing it and so there was a moment where people said oh that's what i'm doing and so that was a platform we tried to get that out there i know other people other hash makers which oh i'm going to do this i'm going to i'm going to steam terps and then those people just kind of fell off and i started developing different techniques and experimenting with different ways and that would go through different versions until I settled to where I am today. And there was a moment, I think, in Blue River when we were selling terpenes where they were pretty good. And then they just went nuclear. And it went so nuclear that anytime I tried to ship terpenes, uh, they would get confiscated. You know? I remember, yeah. 
dude, this was like the fall of it all. So what happened was we were like, I just felt like, hey, there's no THC or CBD. And um, as long as they're THC free, we could ship these terpenes anywhere in the world. And we were selling them to different places around the world. Um, it did come from whole plant. It did come from buds that were costing, you know, $1,800 a pound to $2,200 a pound. They were legit. They were real. And that's why they were really expensive. And by the time you got to the purest form of those terpenes, the yields were really, really, really low. And so there was not a mechanism of what to do with the post material until we did stuff with Gold Drop. And so in California, I was like, he was like, what are you doing with all the, I called it soulless. You know, I was like, this soulless bud, there's no oils left. There's no smell left. There's no effect left. <laughs> there's nothing yeah, it's, left. It's soulless bud. bud. And I was throwing them away. And um, my friend, we met up with Joe from Gold Drop and he was like, well, what are you doing with the soulless bud? I'm like, nothing. And he was like, oh, I can extract that and make distillate. And it's like, well, what about reintroducing the terpenes from your solventless extraction process, this tech that you got, with the tech that I have, solvent-free meets solventless, and ultimately where the flavor, the authenticity, the, st- the stamp of what Blue River is, you're, 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 at that time, the tech was terpenes. And you do terpenes better than anyone, so let's, let's authenticate that. And so we started doing that. And, um, and what happened was that ended, I was in California and the industry was, uh, prop 215, you know, and it was still medical. And then things started changing and progressing very quickly. So like there wasn't a track and trace system at the time. And then as, as like UK and Spain and these different uh, countries started pulling the terpenes, even triple vacuum sealed, going through three different carriers, all that shit didn't matter. At the end of the day, the dogs would smell through it. They'd pull it out. They would write letters. They would try to come after us. And ultimately, there was never, there's no like law at the time. There's no THC. And, you know, the letter of the law is any controlled, any analog derivative of a controlled substance by the letter of the law is illegal. And so at that time, like true terpenes and other terpene companies started coming forward with profiles that were either organic gclays or um, other terpenes that were made, you know, from hexane extractions or solvent extractions. But they were companies are putting together these gclays that were not an analog derivative cannabis, but more of a they mimicked a profile that was similar to cannabis, and that market share quickly changed because losing packages of things that cost a lot of money was ultimately how the, um, the powers that be can hurt you. They can turn your shopping cart off. They can grab your packages and they can kick you out of banks. And when that happens like 17 times, you have to at some point just be like, you know what? I wish I could provide the world with Terps, but I got to figure out another way. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I'm curious about is I've heard in California, at least under Prop 64, all cannabis-derived terpenes have to be, in essence, accounted for, right? In Colorado, was that the case or was it different? And 
was that what, what allowed you to, to even be able to do them and ship them out? So I'm trying to remember if I ever actually, no, I never. So this is where it gets interesting and it gets confusing. I had a chapter in my life that was Blue River in Colorado that didn't go anywhere. Um, different group, different people. And I never sold any terpenes from any bud to the general public from Colorado. So I only sold terpenes from uh, buds that were grown in California. Okay. So uh, a lot of people don't know that. And that's kind of why the logo changed because, um, you know, early, it was like one of those things that you knew was really good and, but you didn't know where it was going to go. And certainly after, um, you start selling terpenes in 2000, I started selling two terpenes, you know, and established the brand, but you, you know, like once you, once in like 2016 or 17, you start to like shift those gears and you realize that you don't know where you're going to go with it. I just shifted with it and kind of like rebranded and re reinvented like what the company and where it needs to go and myself at the same time. You know what I mean? Right. For those that probably don't like, they're probably listening, like, where's this going? It's like, essentially like I did a lot of work for other people and I helped other brands, you know, get where they are, but I never actually did anything for myself. And this was like the moment where you create your first thing. Yeah. I have my, at this moment in my life, I've got an understanding of those cannabinoids. I got those first patents out and I got a couple pieces of technology, one working, one working in my head and one on cue. And I made that decision that I, you know, just want to, you know, focus on how I could do this in my own house. And my wife, like when we, how we started this, like, was kind of part of that. She was like, I don't know why you don't just hone your craft and do you and right. the people that want to be with you, be with you. And the people that don't, don't. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool that she, you know, outside of being your wife can influence you in that sense as well. So, well, Tony, I think this is a good chance for us to take a quick smoke break. Let's do it. Cool. I want to take a moment to thank our community on Patreon for their support this year, for helping us produce episode 24 with Tony Rizura, and for allowing us to produce another 13 episodes. I wish I could shout out everyone who's been a part of the community, but since we need to keep it brief, I want to thank the top 20 supporters. Without these 20 people, there is no year two of the Hashishin, so thank you. Kevin of Lifted Indina, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Daniel in Connecticut, Nate in Arizona, Adam from Mission Hill Melts in Massachusetts, Jennifer aka Gendo420 in Maine, Mario in Illinois, James the Casual Cultivator, Arlie from Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, David from Totem Solventless, the homie Big C, Manchu Gardens in Denver, Colorado, Turp Wizard in Michigan, Eric in Washington, Country Boy Rosin, Haji aka Solventless Terps, Joe Itza from Long Island Quartz, Jeff in California, Sunshine Extracts in Colorado, Ryan aka Pickin' Slims in Michigan, Captain Splanks in Roots to Rosin, and Rackhams. We couldn't have done it with each and every one of you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to 2021. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode. 
All right, Tony, let's dive into what I'm going to call the anatomy of a trichome. You know, I've, talk, I've heard you talk about having the opportunity to literally splice a trichome open, see it under, you know, I'm guessing a microscope and, and being able to see that it has almost a, a brain-like feature, vessels to it. Can you talk about more that, about that experience and what you've learned about the trichome in the last 15 years? Yeah, certainly. The, um, you just brought up a really funny old memory. There was about 50 of those amazing posters that cost me a lot of money in getting to the picture of this trichome with a brain with a buddy of mine that I wish to this day I had one of those original posters. And if any of your audience is listening from Colorado, from River Rock days, and I handed you a poster and you happen to have that poster and it's in mint condition and it's on a wall somewhere and you're willing to part from it, I am uh, willing to buy it. <laughs> um, because like, you know, those days when you're going through things, you don't realize like the significance of it. But a buddy of mine who is a very heavy creative director ended up being very successful, like wildly successful in the creative arts he actually did those like 3D projection wrapping on the in New York and in, in Dubai, all kinds of really innovative things. He uh, and I were in photography and videography. His name is Josh. And he uh, told me, hey, if you really want to do this photography, you need to get this, you know, thousand multi-thousand dollar scope with with um, you know, fiber optic lighting and like, let's like, you know, let's get in there deep and like cut the head open. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, cause he's, he's super psychotic as well. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? What do you mean? He's like, you know, like take a layer off, get in deep if we're going to do this. And he was taking uh, pictures of the flowers and I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure. We could do that. I was like, you just need to get like the perfect, like right dry trichomes and wet trichomes to see what like, what's going on in there. And um, within a few days, we had this image uh, that I was describing that is a trichome head, which is like cut. It was like as if we had a brain and it was cut and the skin was pulled off the top layer. And when you looked in there, it was like this crazy brain pattern. And it looked a lot like a brain. It was like unbelievable. However, and whatever reason that happened, when we looked into that, it was like most people look at a trichome head in 2D and they say, okay, this is uh, the vascular system. This is where the, 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 uh, the terpenes are going to form over here on the left. And they show you like this little graphic of what it looks like on the inside. That's all true, but it's done in a multiplex level. It's done in little micro dots. So if you looked at it in 3D and it looks like the top of a brain, think about it in 3D format that like the, yes, there's a terpene pocket and an oil here and there's a cannabinoid thing, but the little circles that are gelled together that are linked in a grid pattern of, of information in an organic way that looks like a brain inside a trichome head. Do you feel that that information that's being transmitted within this trichome head, within this structure is medicinal? Of course. Of course. Yeah, that's all. The, everything, that, everything that you smoke 
and everything. So everything that you're, everything you're experiencing from flour and all the resin and hash that you smoke are these trichome heads. So, I mean, you're asking me if basically resin is medicinal and of it's so it like it's when you look into something like that and you see it, <clears throat> you realize that there's a sophistication of cellular communication and on the microscopic level, a trichome being looking like the size of a piece of large salt. And you look at that and you say, wow, I have a brain and it works like this. And when I look deep down into this little microscopic brain that grows on top of the, tr- on top of the plant and I see another little brain, it's like seeing yourself at a microscopic level. You know, it's like, you're like, oh, I'm going to break apart this thing that I found that's microscopic. And you found a little tiny you, like, like a brain, like you all the way down here. And you're just like, oh my God, are you kidding me? It's like, it's, it's the quantum physics thing. It's like, looks like chaos and then it's organized chaos. And then it's like the mirror and you're like, wait, and you're stuck because you couldn't go any further because you understand what infinity was. And it was that moment, you know? And so once you see that, then there's all kinds of parameters in there that when we talk about like a 25, 40, 70, 90, 120, 149, 180 different head sizes, those head sizes are very similar to how grapes are. And if we look at like a grape, that's why I always compare a grape because it reminds me of the grape. Like when you go to like a vineyard and you see different sized grapes, different maturities of grapes and different genetics of grapes, how many grapes grow on a vine um, versus the different genetics, like and the skin colors and pigments and anthocyanins and all these different things that are in there. If you took the grape and you peeled off the skin of the grape, there'd be like a thickness to each one of those grapes. There would be a distance between that wall, the outer wall, and the cells in between it. There's this gel in between there before you see the seeds. And then when you get closer into it, you're like, okay, well, where's the juice? And, the, and there's a moment with a grape that you could peel a grape and it would still be all held together. And then it could be all juice. There's that moment, right? Um, in its maturity stage. And the same thing happens with trichomes, that trichomes go through this maturity stage. And they go from cellular, vascular, in its raw form while it's alive. And then when they dry, they end up, they end up changing uh, molecular structure and the way it works from the inside as well as the outside. But like, think of it as a grape and a raisin, right? It's going to be very juicy and early on ripeness versus full ripeness to when it's dried in a raisin changes all of those parameters from the skin thickness to the juice content to the terpenes everything and so seeing it under a scope like that puts the puts a different perspective and visualization on these things yeah i'm sure you know i've heard you talk about flavonoids a bit and it's something that not many people discuss in depth because i think in part they're probably one of the more understudied things found in cannabis trichomes. So can you again tell us what you know about them and in essence what like role they play in cannabis resin production? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question as well. Um, they're part of like the phenolic structure. So when we think of terpenes and uh, uh, phenols, there are certain phenols that are being released 
when you cut a plant down, if you ever notice a plant that's alive, it has a certain smell, you cut it down, you hang it to dry, and then you cure it. So there's different stages of drying and curing. And in the first two to three days, there's this uh, release of, of water, and people always say it has that kind of grassy smell, or it's really a phenolic-like kind of smell. There's lots of like volatiles uh, and, and turning into gas and escaping off the plant. And you really wouldn't want to smoke, per se, a, a flower that's freshly picked that day. You need to dry it, and that could take several days, and you could cure it, and that could take up to 30 days, depending on how you cure it, the temperature, the release point, the burping. There's all these things that go into that. And people that know how to dry and cure uh, properly grown uh, cannabis that's been harvested at the right time um, can really time this out. So they're going to look for the trichome head to be have a certain amount of amber and a certain amount of color and a certain consistency in the head when they, dry, when they cut it to dry it, to cure it, to smoke it. And so there's just been a uh, philosophy and development of that and that's what we know for smoking. And it's totally different for making extracts. At least today it is. Back in the day, it was similar. And so um, for dry products and cured products, that's the way. And for fresh frozen products, we cut it down and freeze it. And so just like terpenes, there are monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes. And a high, rich amount of monoterpenes exist in the plant early on. So when the plant's alive, if it has 2% terpenes, of the 2%, 80% will be monoterpenes. As the plant dries and cures, you lose those monoterpenes every single day. There's a, there's a half-life to them. And so flavonoids are part of this phenolic structure. They're found in everything else too, just with terpenes, like fruits, vegetables, grains, bark, roots, teas, even in wines. There's a lot of different beneficials, health uh, beneficial effects and health uh, on flavonoids. And so there, it's another oil base that's in that head. And what's interesting about that is if we talk about the entourage effect, back to Ethan Russo, and we say, and we look at some individuals like Dave Watson and individuals out there that researched, along with Robert Clark, they were kind of side by side and some other guys that researched the effects of pure THC and terpenes then paired with different terpenes and THC. And as they added complex groups of terpenes, the effect of the THC modulated or interacted with more of those 31 receptors that we talked about earlier. And so flavonoids or flavonoids or however you want to pronounce it, um, aren't about the flavor but there are, are, there are these, these phenolic oils and structures that are inherently, in my opinion, seem to be attached um, both to that terpene and to that uh, cannabinoid. They're kind of like this little liquid, almost like gel between the two of them. We were like looking at it like we were talking about kind of the brain inside. inside. Right. And, and so anthocyanins and things like that can produce the colors. Now, here's what I discovered. I used to like have this debate all the time. Oh, terpenes have different colors. They don't. They're all clear. Just straight up cannabis terpenes, the way I track them are 100% clear. That's not what changes it. However, I have seen pure clear terpenes with pure white THCA get added to each other and not stay white. It'll change in color. And so 
when I started to look deeper into this, I would discover that there's impurities or nuances. It wasn't 99% THCA. It wasn't 99% cannabis terpenes. There was inherently, maybe it was 97% raw THCA, CBGA, CBCA. And there was this 3% unknown, but I knew it wasn't waxes. And then there was, but it was, there was something there because the color was whatever. And so what I noticed was that different oxidation of those terpenes and different points that can happen, and this can happen organically, because I've seen terpenes accelerate decarboxylation without heat, and I've seen unique things happen from terpenes where CBD was uh, precipitated out of its solution base into crystal with terpenes, which we were doing, and I've seen different reactions. So I'm giving you my experience, and if I wanted to make, and if I wanted to follow the color spectrum, and make the all white hash, I would. But I feel there's, there is inherently a connection between the way that flavonoids oxidize or create oxidation or create a reaction with those cannabis terpenes that can dictate color spectrum. There's some form of a synergistic effect between the cannabinoids and the terpenes where these flavonoids sit. And they seem to help change the oxidation and color and the color spectrum for when a plant is alive and when the plant is dried and cured. And it is reflective in the extracts as well, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, on the same note, just because you guys play around with and so much material and, and break it down, I'm curious. So an anthocyan is a type of flavonoid, right? From what I understand. Pretty much. Yes. And so I'm curious, just like with the terpenes and the water, and, and we briefly discussed that off air, which, you know, we'll obviously get to, but you know, what's the difference between purple hash and purple rosin? Like how are those pigments getting through on a very few, like rare instances versus getting left back when being pressed? All right. So that's a good question too. I've seen, I've seen a lot of different purple hash and purple rosin. So let's break this down. If you press flour and you make flour rosin, there's a strong chance that the anthocyanins are bleeding in to the extract in the oil itself. And the anthocyanins, so when, when people are like, hey, we've got, we're feeding the plant phosphorus and we got the room really cold at 55 or 62 and it turned purple and some turn purple and some don't turn purple. It's not just the phosphorus, like adding phosphorus to your plants. It's how that phosphorus is being absorbed from the plant and how the genetic pigment of that plant is interacting. And this anthocyanin is part of that in the oil glands of the plant and in the resin glands. And so you can see it in leaves or what you, appears to be in leaves. It's in the secretion of the oil at the very surface of those leaves. And sometimes it can be in the veins of the plant, right? And people like, no, you know, it's inherently part of the plant. And so those are anthocyanins that then can secrete and stain into the actual oils. And then when those oils are pushed up into a head, rarely, very rarely, Sometimes this happens and maybe it's a mutation. The anthocyanins will get pulled 
or stain just the oil. So the anthocyanins themselves don't get in the head. Because when you okay. see flower rosin with anthocyanins, it's cakey, it leaves char on your nail. For me personally, I don't want anything to do with it. I know I've been a harsh critic of that to different people. I apologize. Sometimes I can be an asshole, but my, I feel like our job is to remove impurities, waxes, and things that don't vaporize. I don't want to smoke anthocyanins. But there's a, there's a couple guys, I think he's in Michigan, where the resin itself has this purple-blue hue but doesn't have actual anthocyanins that we think of like that in, in the sense that it attaches to like lipids and waxes. Those anthocyanins are f- effectively a flavonoid that is a oil base that is binding to uh, and in between the cannabinoids and the terpenes. Right. And so they're, they're leaving their color impression in this very natural, magical way. And it's rare. Yeah, you don't see it often, and that's part of why I was asking, and that's cool. So I appreciate you, you know, filling in on that. Well, I will also say that now let's throw in the lipids, waxes, cellular walls, all of those things. Now think about how a terpene or a flavonoid of both the of those presents could affect and nucleate and potentially absorb into a hydrophilic or hydrophobic rosin. So if you've got a, a very particular terpene profile that's hydrophobic versus hydrophilic and you have a certain flavonoid and you have a certain waxy membrane from those heads, you get a, a combination, like you'll get a combination. So like a strawberry banana, as an example, will have like these bigger heads, waxier lipids in the heads, be good yielders, but by the time you press it, maybe the press guild wasn't heavy, but you've got more waxes pulled out of it. And so the humulene versus the limonene versus the myrcene versus, uh, you know, terpenoline, all of these different things weigh, even though they're small, they weigh on its, sol- like its, its solvent ability. So a terpene could like eat away at something and create only an oil. And that's, that's what we're seeing, where a terpene can nucleate and butter out. And really what's happening is it's a hydrophobic or hydrophilic reaction based on the terpene profile and the oxygen reaction or the air reaction and the moisture reaction with those particular flavonoids that are sitting there may actually affect nucleation as well. I'm just leaving that open because I think it should be left open and just know that that could be also another potentiator. Okay, so if you had to summarize what you just said, you're saying in some cases you feel like those flavonoids can nucleate with these other parts, like the fats and the lipids. Yes. So okay. what happens? So as an example, let's say that guy that has the ros- the hash that's blue, and the anthocyanin that's in there, in its oil-based flavonoid version, if it's like you know, like you get good six star. And you get when you go press six star, you're gonna get like eighty to ninety percent press, and you gotta go slower and gentler because it's just like big heads. And so ultimately, what I'm saying to you is that don't rule out the the flavonoids in whether a extract is going to is going to naturally butter or naturally oil, and don't and understand that it takes up that mystery percentage in your test. So if you have a purity of 87 or 93%, 
but you don't have any waxes. And there's some products that we make that lead me to understand that, oh, now I know what my flavonoid percentage is. And that flavonoid percentage could be also looked at as an impurity, or it could be looked at as a uh, something that's adding to the overall entourage effect. And in my opinion, it's real. It's a really important feature of the can and the authenticity of the cannabis extract and the flower. Don't rule out flavonoids. And I've I've gotten it, so I've removed the flavonoids too. Yeah, that was my next question: Is have you guys mechanically separated flavonoids? Flan. That's so flan. So flan, no, it's out. So fl- so so that's like uh, man, it's another subject for us. But essentially, if I start with base live rosin, the deconstruction style is mechanically pure, making that that particular extract more pure mechanically with and still keeping it unadulterated, meaning no no reintroductions. I'm not taking terpenes from flowers and putting it back in there. How do we take this base rosin and improve upon it by reducing lipids, waxes, cellulose, impurities? And then where does that go? And then how do we take that and take it to 99% purity of just cannabinoids and terpenes? And that's what flan is. Once you get to that level, then you're like, okay, now you've reached what I consider flan separation. Okay, so having said that, talk to me more about fats and lipids because okay. I think it's there's a lot of maybe misconceptions with it. You know, one of the things that I've yep. heard people say is people that smoke or smoked hydrocarbons, you know, one of their biggest knock on, on solvent list was, I don't want to smoke fats and lipids. You know, so I don't know how true that is, and I don't know how much more complex that is. It's an amazing question, and something that this this part of your show right here, I would focus in on. All right, so a flower itself, when you press flower rosin, I compare flower rosin to CO two, raw CO two, in the sense that you're pressing a flower under pressure whether it's a gas or a press, and you're expelling all of the oil that's in there under such high pressure that everything comes out. And in CO2, you get a lot of those, a lot of the plant fats and lipids. And in flower rosin, you get a lot of plant fats and lipids. This is different than the fats in the actual trichome heads. We're going to get to that. But when okay. we're talking about whole plant extraction, if we're talking CO2 and flower rosin, these two are kind of in the same category. Except flower rosin is going to have a little less. You're going to have, you know, someone's like, "Hey, I hit 82 percent cannabinoids and terpenes in my flower rosin." I would say you probably have another six percent flavonoids, which is really good, to eight percent. So you really have probably 90 percent purity, but you got about eight to 10 percent lipids and fats still in there. And that's why flower rosin sometimes can leave a little behind in the bowl and stuff like this. And it requires a higher temperature of vaporization because there's more fat to get through. And those are not great fats. And so with CO2 extractors, they then do an 8 to 1 ethanol, and then they do uh, distillate, distill that, rotor vap and distill that by boiling off the alcohol, and they try to reduce the fats into a distillate. And so distillate is not only ends up being a solvent-free, but it ends up being a completely de-waxed product. So they're not wrong when they say, hey, I don't want any smokes. 
this and that. But really what they're smoking is they're talking, like if we get to that point, you're at 91% THC and you have this other uh, 9% that we don't ever talk about. This other 9% is what happens when you go from THCA to THC. So if we go from 99% THCA, the best use to theoretically get is 87. So when a guy that's doing a BHO extraction and distillate hits 91, he's really doing his job. Like he has, you understand? And so that's like the cleanest version. And so when we talk about all of these BHO, ethanol, CO2, and flower rosin, all of those extraction methods are starting with a flower and getting an oil, which will be the fattiest, most lipidy to start with. So when we talk about hashish and we talk about resin, now we're talking about removing just the trichome heads from that from that plant material and then now we're talking about that group of heads now each one of those trichome heads are going to be a different size they're going to have a different cellular wall thickness they're going to have a different fat content could be from three i always just say fat because it's easier for people to understand this like in beef or anything else it's like the leanness you're going to have anything from like one and a half all the way up to eight percent fat Right. So it's like when you talked about that brain, it's it's that fattiness that was holding all that stuff together, basically. Yes. Yes. And now when we're talking about live versus dry, we're talking about monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes. We're talking about hydrated fat versus dried out, no more water fat, right? And so it gets very interesting because BHO extraction on fresh frozen. Is, giving, is also going through, it's only going through a 50 micron. So that means it's dissolving, that putane is dissolving those fresh heads in that plant and it's going through like a 50 micron. And in the world of hash, that's pretty good because you're thinking about how much filtration, but there's still a little bit of fats in there. But by the time it gets to that point, it's, what, it's like our a, A5 Wagyu fat. It's a good fat. And live rosin, in my opinion, has this really good savory fat that melts better when you take a dab and, and vaporizes easier than when it's dry. So when, the, when that resin gland is dry and cured, it becomes a harder, smaller fat, and you might get less fat in a dry sift rosin, um, but it's going to be in a different format. It's not going to be the savory, buttery fat. It's going to be a little bit of the harder fat. And so all of that, no matter live rosin or dry sift rosin, was always been my starting point to making these other extracts. And that's where this deconstructed theory came along, which is, hey, if I could take rosin and I can break it down to THCA, CBCA, CBGA, all of the raw phytocannabinoids and all of the active uh, uh, cannabinoids and the flavonoids and remove and the terpenes in full spectrum and remove all of these other uh, impurities then I can actually start making designer dabs and signature extracts. And that process started two, three years ago where I'm like, okay, now I got to this level. So what can we do? And that was also a learning experience because without the fats to hold it all together, <laughs> things could evaporate. Consistencies could change. There was a whole nother paradigm of like, oh shit, what did I do? I unraveled this thing and it's like a slinky trying to go back in the jar. Right. So we talked about this a little off air and it ties into 
what you're talking about. Let's talk about water. Let's talk about water as a medium, as a carrier versus water as a solvent. Okay. So there's a lot of misconception that people think that somehow I, I subscribe to the idea that water uh, is also considered solventless. In the past, what I would say that is a true, true, when I say true solventless, that definition means water was not used as a carrier. Nothing was used. True mechanical. And that screens static, like mechanical separations of resin gland using vibration, sieves, static, magic, however you can do it. But you basically just get to trichome heads without any carriers, any water, anything else. And so for me, dry sift and dry sift hash rosin is what I would consider a true solventless. I would still consider ice water extract hash and hash rosin from that a solventless product, a non-solvent type of product. So the definition of that and where that's originated from, in my opinion and what I know from the information that's out there was nicotine and uh, essential extracts and people from when I first got exposed to solventless, that was that crew in, in Denver. And that's what I was known as solventless. Some people called it full melt. Some people call it ice water extracts. Some people call it solventless, but that term, and some people don't like the term solventless. They think it's ridiculous that we use the term solventless. So um, I think ice water extraction is a good way to look at it. Um, And ultimately, water is a universal solvent. It It does and can be used as a solvent. And you could change the pH of water and it will have different properties that can act as a solvent. And so oil and water don't mix except at like 11, 11 pH they do. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> and so um, there's different things that where you can take different methods and, and look at water. And so in the case of ice water extraction, the water is lab grade. The water is controlled between, you know, 32 and 38 degrees. It's very cold water. It's very filtered, clean water. The ice is cold. The ice is filtered. And the ice itself being used as an agitator to knock off trichomes, whether it's on dry material or fresh frozen or flash frozen uh, material, the water in this case is just being used as a carrier. It's not dissolving the trichome heads themselves. And if you don't believe me, just take ice water, take a pickle jar, put ice in it, put water in it, take a bunch of buds in it, put them in, fill it up with the water, put the lid on, shake up the jar for like three minutes, let the ice and everything shake up, leave the jar alone and watch all the little heads fall to the bottom and just wait. And if water is going to dissolve the heads, then those heads will get dissolved over time. And so you'll find that the water itself is not acting as a solvent, but more or less acting like a carrier. And in the process of making ice water extraction, the idea is for the plant to touch the water for the least amount of time as possible and remove the water as fast as possible. So in the, in the, in the process of making ice water extraction and using freeze dryers, the bud is frozen. It goes in the, into the water for no more than 45 minutes 
and the water is is quickly and gently removed uh, anywhere from six to 12 hours away from those trichome heads. Okay, and since you brought this up earlier, in a different regard, the terpene profiles and some of them working in water and some not working in water. So, you know, I'm curious your opinion as to the majority of cultivars don't seem to yield well in water. Is that a question of cuticle? Is that a question of terpene profiles? Is that a question of all these things coming into play and almost acting as solvents on themselves? I think that the truth is in the water and in this process. So dry sifting and dry sift static tech, as well as ice water extraction method, equal the truth. When what I mean by that is we're not magicians. These are, are this is semi-artisanal, mostly science. And at the end of the day, you get what I call read of the resin. And we're like teachers. And we give you back the grades. And we don't have any like personal feelings about it towards a grower. We might love the grower and everything, but our job is to remove that resin and report back to what was there and what was not there. And a lot of people just hate getting their report card. And so that's what hash makers do. And they basically evaluate your genetics, your cultivation skills, your resin to leaf production, all kinds of things. And in the past, most people are trying to make extracts from smokable flowers. And so in the last five years, people have woken up to the idea of that not just breed for terpenes, especially in the last two years, we're breeding for terpenes. Well, let's breed for terpenes and let's also breed for particular resin glands that have a thin, harder outside, smaller fat, the right perfect balance of fat and protection of the head with the right amount of terpenes inside, with the right amount of vessel and the, and the right bulbous type of heads and these types of resin glands that it's going to produce that is falls in this grade. And so now people are trying to grow between the 40 and the 149. And that's your like grade what, from 40 to 180. But really, I'm focused in on the 70 to the 149 range. And that's really where I'm grading you. I'm looking for six and five star between 40 and 80. And for what I want to smoke, I'm between the 70U and the 149. I want to really focus and hone in on those heads because that's where the real juice is at. That's from that's where the heartbeat of this plant is at, is in those resin glands. And when we talk about four to six star, six star being the best it can be, five star melting and leaving a little behind of these little waxes and fats and things we're talking about. And four, like being uh, you know, a C on that. And what that translates to is your press yield. Six star is going to press and, and it's going to be like 80 plus. And, and five star is going to press 70, 75 plus. Um, and then as you go down, four star would be like 66 to 70. And as you go down, it gets worse. And so ultimately that this particular, um, this particular concept and understanding from a cultivator is, is I would say the next wave that you're seeing. And so they are having, and they're being forced to grow genetics and bud for extractors. And so I think BHO has a certain type of strains that perform really well. And I think water extraction and dry sift 
also has its certain type of strains. And the growers and these people that are behind the scenes are getting the data from the hash makers simultaneously. And I'm watching them in their farms. They're building two silos in their head. They're three, actually. They're going, these flowers, people want to smoke. These flowers do amazing in BHO. And these flowers do amazing in ice water extraction. And if you're a cultivator and you're listening to this, that's what you want to know. What strains do I need to grow that I find being the easiest to grow, that are the most resilient, that produce the most yields that's worth it? So resin to leaf yield that somebody's willing to pay. Because I'm willing to pay as an extractor more money when I get a higher yield of a higher quality resin. And I'm not so concerned about what, what it looks like as far as an extractor. Whereas the retail guy was like, I don't care about anything, but how does this bud look in a jar? And then what does it test? And how does it smell? And there's different parameters. And so you're absolutely right. There's a line in the sand. And those are the three, those are the three categories. Not a, like certain strains are great for smoking, terrible for BHO, terrible for water. Some strains are really terrible for smoking, great for ice water extraction, and terrible in BHO. And so I can look at a list of strains and go, out of 10 of these strains, I can see it. Those, those three or four are smoking, these, these three are BHO, uh, I'll grab these two right here because I know the, the resin structure and the profile and the yields. And that comes with experience. But those are the trends that are happening right now. And I think, I think it's going to take a couple more years, but the consumer deserves that. They deserve to go up to the shop and know they have the best of the best of that particular grow in those three categories. You know, what's interesting to me, Tony, is that you don't bring up the dry sift because you've been talking about it in the interview. And, you know, I know that's something that you do that's a little more unique than most people. And from what I've heard you, you know, talk about, you're into developing the technology that it's going to take to, I don't know if automate is the right word with the dry sifting, but talk to us about the advantage of that, you know, because you talked about the trichome as a grape, it becoming a raisin. So what benefit is there to making rosin out of that raisin? All right. So I have the machines. I have like five of them. And they work off of uh, similar static sifting, but they're custom. They work off of magnetics, rotation, vibration. We can essentially control the actuation and the and the how the bud rotates, how it's agitated, and its velocity and elevation, if you will, very gently on a very special system that can control different static points. And it essentially creates a continuous flow and a cone that can capture all these trichome hits. Now, I feel that's, that's also the truth because it captures all the heads. And you could, and it's something that took us a while to develop. And we did it a lot because a lot of the growers were doing like whole plant dried material or fresh. And I started doing freshly cured. And for me personally, there was a moment where I was like, wow, I don't want to do fresh frozen, but I don't want to do dried all the way. I want to do a freshly dried project. And so Cali Kosher and us got together and we did this one-off project with the papaya and we did a flight. 
and we did this rosin sauce and we did this flan and we did a straight rosin. And that was from dried material, but it was picked five to six days early. It was freshly dried and then frozen, meaning I gave it two to four days, six days, just so the water was out just a little bit. And then it was frozen. And then from that point, you can use water to your advantage and different temperature points of that bud can be reached would make different brittle points. So, you know, you could go at a certain point, you start breaking cellular walls. And so people have seen this, maybe if you tried to freeze dry, you break cellular walls. Um, but I created a couple of different machines, one in, co- one in collaboration with someone else. And this other step that's important is to get the bud prepped and, and then this into this type of machine. And so that is, in my opinion, I kind of like steer away from that when it comes to greenhouse. And I think when you can control like indoor environments, so like dust particulates and dirt and things that they spray in the sky, when you're talking about dry sift, I think there's only another company like Jungle Boys and Cuban used to do this. Um, just think about it that way. Like if it's, if it's dry sift, then the resin needs to be like perfect. And the resin's not perfect and perfectly cared for, then the end product, I don't think is going to come out the way that I'd like to see it. When I pick it, select it, go through this process, my process, uh, and I run the machine, it looks like spectacular rosin. I mean, it could look very, very good. And you would be like, oh, that looks like live rosin. And it has like still monoterpene rich. It has a nice balance. Um, and I think in that flight that we did with Cali Kosher, that was a good example of the possibilities of what could be done in a controlled, organic, kosher <laughs> greenhouse in which we were able to perfectly harvest and pick and separate that same day and do the whole deconstruction thing. But it's very hard. And we implemented that tech into Florida because they only had solvent-based extracts. And so all these machines had gone down there and you know the process works good when you can control every parameter. But as that those facilities and those grow scale up and different things like I think it takes it, it just takes a little bit more a lot more control points for it to really work out well. And I think that fresh frozen and live rosin is a lot more forgiving. And I think it has a lot more availability now to scale up. And in the last several months, we've been working on how to automate and how to scale up ice water extraction methods. And so I feel pretty confident that like over the next like six months to a year, we're really going to be able to evolve live rosin into another platform of acceptance like globally by doing this. And, you know, it was, it's just time for, you know, you do things a certain way and people are all trying to automate this and do different machines, but it's, it's again, multiple steps. How do you make the best step and the most efficient and and how to use the least amount of ice, the, the least amount of water, you know, there's all these like consumptions and efficiency ratings. And so it's ultimately like where I think it's going. And so I do think there's a place for dry sift and I do think there's a place for dry sift rosin and it's deconstructed components. And I'm kind of pushing that and leaning that more into combining that into like the digestibles. Like it's more stable for like beverages or for gummies or for full spectrum capsules. You know, there's different places for that type of technology 
versus right. consuming it for like dabs and stuff like that. I, not that it, it can't be. I just right. think there's a better way that we're pushing now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as Nikati would say, allocations, right? Like it, it has its function. And, you know, since you brought up, if you're a grower being up to date with, with strains that are good for these processes, I've heard you talk about the white buffalo. Obviously, I don't know if this is something that's public, but can you talk a little bit about it? Uh, in what aspect? If the I aspect like it of or... it being uh, a good dry sifter and, and actually having to grow it out for nine to ten weeks as opposed to maybe something that's done a little sooner. I mean, it's an old school strain, Romulan strain. It's an old Bay Cross. It's, if done right, it has this like, it's a good name for it because it smells like the the musky chest, this musky, sweaty, hairy chest of a buffalo. Um, <laughs> it's definitely got this like, it's, for some, they love it. For other people, they don't like it. You know, like it's just got this certain smell to it. I personally, that's, it's funny you brought that particular strain up. I personally don't like that strain for dry sift uh, hash rosin. Only be, I'd say because of certain properties of it. And it's not that it doesn't yield well, and it is a long strain. It's that, that nine to 11 weeks of it um, the flavonoids oxidize and there tends to be another parameter, which we didn't cover, like how the, per- the percentage of CBGA. So live rosin will have more CBGA than say dry sift rosin, but the CBGA turns into CBG or it then has a different, it's not a savory cannabinoid that melts off and vaporizes easy when it gets dry into a dry sift rosin not only do you see a, uh, like a darker color in the white buffalo but you'll also have more of this like particulate that's left behind from the cbg and like the type of waxes and how it hardens and so some people really like that for the effect and flavor but those that like are getting into nine and eleven week varieties understand there's there's, it's just a very mature resin that isn't going to melt and vaporize as clean as something that's like seven or eight weeks from a fresh harvest. It's, right. it's like a mature, mature, traditional flower tasting expression when we're talking about like a longer dry sift rosin. Okay, yeah, interesting. Like you said, everything has its uses, so that might not be the best one for... For making rosin. People love it though. People do love it. Some people, yeah. Some people love it. So, um, you know, like me personally, I try to, I think for the rosin, I think that the consumers are dictating this and I don't blame them. I think there's a level of acceptance of what they think the color should look like. And there's nothing, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do as extractors to try to convince people that color is kind of irrelevant, but it kind of is relevant. You know, the, like if you pull plants early and you make rosin that's really, really white, that's telling me that it has a lot of THCA because I've given, I can make a live THCA that's pure white and you've seen that. And so like that's THCA, pure white, no flavonoids, no nothing, no terpenes, there's hardly anything left. That's pure white. And so that means I have less terpenes. So if I see a chalky white or I see an oil that goes chalky white and I'm losing terpenes, 
in room temperature. I don't want to chase my terps. I don't want to chase my extracts. It's annoying to me. And so that's why I was like, we got to do something different than just put live rosin out and watch it evaporate because it's, you work so hard. You want to see those monoterpenes evaporate. And so there's a, I feel a very good sweet spot. So when you see like a pale yellow and a yellow uh, variety rosin that's really greasy and wet um, and it's live rosin and it's got this like almost micro crystallization nucleation and it's got this sexy glaze to it, that like off that like yellow or that pale yellow, in my opinion, is way more desirable, way more consistent, way more flavorful uh, and stronger than something that's in that pale white, like very white chalky kind of look. And so for a while there, I feel like, you know, solvents consumers are really after the white. And then once you, once you realize that that's not everything, then you like, you, you take a step back and like, okay. And then you look at sauces and sauces. I was putting out sauces years ago. I was like, Oh, why is it so dark? That's terrible. That's poop soup. You know, they, they think it's like butane. <laughs> and I'm like, no, when you separate THCA from the sauce, from rosin, the sauce always has all the color and all the terpenes and all the flavonoids. And then what's left in the bag is your THCA. That's all your raw. And you could see the color. You could see if I took this white and I took this sauce and I combine it back, it makes the yellow rosin. And so um, that's a lot of consumer education. Just know that like flavor and modulation effect and terpenes play a huge role. And you know, just THCA or THC is not enough to really, you know, effectively move the needle for me to experience like what the authenticity of that experience is of that strain, you know? Right. Yeah. That profile. Well, Tony, uh, let's take a quick smoke break and then we'll be right back. All right. You got it. It's important to me to feel like I can genuinely recommend a product to someone, in this case listeners, which is why I love working with low temp plates and I feel confident in recommending their gear and genuinely believing that you'll love it. Their equipment is all made in the USA, which in these times is more important than ever to support our fellow businesses. Their equipment is reliable and made with quality materials. Their equipment is scalable, allowing it to grow with your needs. Their equipment is modular, allowing you to make the right choice for you because everyone has different needs, which is something that Low Template specializes in. And their equipment is affordable. In comparison to other high-end rosin press companies, Low Templates by far gives you the most bang for your buck. And the customer service speaks for itself. Feel free to check out the reviews on their sites and you'll see that they always keep their customers happy. And on top of it all, they provide a lifetime warranty on their equipment. So if you're in the market for a rosin press or a freeze dryer or other rosin accessories, check out Low Temp Plates at lowtemp-plates.com. That's L-O-W-T-E-M-P-plates.com or on Instagram at lowtemp.plates. And don't forget to use the savings code THI, which is our savings code for the hashish in. Again, the letters THI with no spaces to save 5% on your entire order. Not only do you support low templates, but you support us. And by supporting us, it allows us to continue to make content. So if you make a purchase from low templates, make sure to use our savings codes. Again, the letters THI. All right, so let's talk a little bit about 
the new blue river terps and what you guys are doing. You know, we've mentioned the term deconstructed. We've talked about taking rosin apart. What's the vision? Yeah. So as these different pieces came together, terpene extraction, static dry sifting, um, learning about really the resin between live and dry, we started to um, offer, at least I started to vision offering both a cured and a live product line because I felt like, you know, when you take an honest opinion from 10 people and you ask 10 people to try a dab and you have flan in the room, you don't get all 10 to subscribe to it and say, oh, I love this stuff. And if you take those 10 people and you say five of them are smokers of flour and five of them are dabbers, and of those five, half are BHO and half are solvents, because it's kind of like how the market is. 50% of the crowd is smoking this other half that's dabbing. They're either BHO or solvents or both. And so I look at it as a traditional versus a new age. And there's a traditional guy that likes to smoke herb, loves to taste the flower, likes the high from flower. And when he smokes an extract, he's kind of looking for that. And I found that half the people when we gave a vape cart and I said, hey, this one, forget the test score. They're all 10% terps. They're all highest potency, 85% cannabinoids, 10% terps. We're 95% purity, right? So if you present a live and a dry side by side and don't let them see the cart, and tell them what the strain is, and you let them try it. And they don't see the color, because that's really the difference between cured and live at this point. A lot has to do with the color. And the sesquiterpenes from a dried and cured have a very traditional taste, like traditional hashish or that traditional flower taste. And believe it or not, half the people gravitate towards that, because they're smokers, they relate to it. Some of the people in the group are looking for really monoterpene, like the most obnoxious, real plant friggin' taste you can get. And they are not going to be satisfied unless they get the bud in their mouth type of feeling. And that's like the other 25%. And then there's the 25% to sit in the middle that really want the balance, that with the cleanest product, they really want a balance of, um, and those are like the new age versus the traditional. And part of the new age that's also looking for that plant life, that live plant in their mouth, also is a little more sophisticated in understanding that they're looking for a real entourage effect and an authentic experience to that flower in the most pure form possible. And there's the other 25, and they get it and they understand it. So when, we look at, when I look at it, I have this traditional base and this new age base, and I really want to cater to both, but I feel like I let the market decide that. And I pivot very quickly and try to try to provide what I think we're getting in our call centers, our feedback. We take everyone's like Instagram comments and we listen to everybody. And our goal at Blue River is we're developing technology, education, information, and, and being able to provide that to operators around the, you know, the globe to create solventless products and the best that they can with those plants that they have. And if a device or a product or a jar or something taints that experience, 
that becomes a priority. Or we see trends that we, we prioritize what the people want, basically. In, in reverse, a lot of companies just tell you what you're going to get. These things have evolved, just like when you asked me about the patients, these products have evolved from the people. What do the people want? And, and we listen and they say, I want products in certain consistencies that last on, the, on my table, that, that makes my life convenient, that's the same through. There's, there's parameters and there's certain price points that you can expect with those types of products and there's certain limits with those uh, price points. And you have to listen to them and you have to be able to change. And so I feel like in California, we've, that market has gone from patient base to adult use base rapidly. And in Colorado, I was there for that. And you see consumer base kind of dictate that. And they, they tend to, and at least in our niche, we've, we found that people tend to like more of the live products. Um, they're interested in the live products. For those that are adult, you know, on the adult use side and in California, and, but they come with a price. And that market's willing to pay that price. And then we're in another medical market where like the full spectrum static dry sift hash rosin at a much lower price point offers such a great medicinal effect that they don't really care about anything but except how does this make me feel and how much did it cost me and can I continue to do it? Two right. different markets. Right. You and know? you want to appeal to both of them is what you're saying. Correct. And so what, I, what I've had to do is evolve as a company and say, I have my flagship and I have certain places in which I do my personal signature type of extracts, which is what we're talking about deconstructed. And so when you see signature Taroni or jelly or flan, this is like when you see me personally doing a takeoff or using all of the technology that I have and all the technique that we have to create designer dabs for exotic experiences at a higher purity level of both terpenes and cannabinoids than the base live rosin. And by exotic, are you referring to being able to extend, combine, or, or even uh, reduce cannabinoid levels, terpene levels, flavonoid levels at, at will, essentially? Yeah, so I kind of refer this to a super concentrate. And some of the hash makers probably won't agree with me, but if I'm able to take a rosin that's 85% and I take it to 99% purity and I'm able to improve the statistics and the performance of that, it, and it takes me 15 to 1 versus a 12 to 1 in its concentration, I've essentially improved that by more than 20%. So if I've improved something more than 15 or 20% in its overall, overall purity and performance, then it's really a super concentrate from the rosin. So I call it deconstruction style, but really I'm cleaning things up and I'm taking away impurities, but I'm also rebuilding certain profiles and into very specific uh, textures and consistencies based on what consumers are telling me they want in a consistency. And so it kind of, when you do that and you get to that tech, it naturally falls into to three, just basically three or four types of categories. And when you say performance, do you basically mean the effect or just what the consumer's feeling from that product? So I look at it from a modulation effect. 
how much bang am I getting out of out of this <laughs> out of this dab, right? And I can evaluate it like we we're kind of talking offline. This Puffco Peak Pro, knowing my bowl temperature and knowing my vaporization point and how long I can extend the duration for vaporization is really important. And like I'm trying when I increase purity, I'm going to lower viscosity. As we increase terpenes, we lower viscosity. And so, or it goes higher viscosity, right? And so what ends up happening is we can control the viscosity, which controls the lower vaporization point. And so that's important because if I'm starting with a rosin that's 4% terpenes, and when I'm done deconstructing it, and now it's 10% terpenes, or 14% terpenes, that should tell you that I've removed that much of the impurities, that much waxes, that much lipids, that much bullshit in the way from our experience of what the effect is going to be of those terpenes, flavonoids, and cannabinoids, because that's all I'm interested in. I'm wanting the purest form of those. And so if we are able to, to get that naturally, which is what we're doing, then we uh, present a, a higher performance oil and an effect. So I use less of it and get more vapor out of it. And therefore I get more uses out of that particular gram. Yeah. Essentially just more bang for your buck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm also like, you're just like, remember blue river is founded on a guy that's a dabber. And I'm also like you trying to figure out, how do I get the most out of everything I have? Because I also have to buy my extracts because it's <laughs> once we went regulated, it's like, okay, great. I still have to pay retail minus some discount, like 20% off. whoop de do. I mean, it's right. great, but it's not, I mean, I'm the guy that if I make it, I'm like, oh, there it goes. Oh, well, I got to buy it. Yeah. And so how does that work? Do you even get to R&D on the product? Uh, so that, so that is interesting. So like there's years of experience of what, that's also something I do with those signature blends is I'm doing, I'm usually taking like a banana OG and a wedding cake and I make a banana cake and those two go together really well. Or you take like mimosa and strawberry banana, you know, or a tangy and strawberry banana. I found that those worked really well. And so I'm making these like signature blends. And so like the, the experience over the 10 years we were talking about, allows me to smell and look at things and know the profile and see the consistencies and go, these two will pair, these two will pair, these three will go good together. So I feel like that's a good skill level that I've developed. And sometimes I can do really complex things. And so like when I do a banana fosters or I take three or four things and make something really complex, that's because I want you to experience like multiple dimension of the extract. So not just now, now we're not talking about the terpenes and the flavor and the effect, but like how does it taste and the texture of it on the way in, in the back of your throat, in your nose. And when you exhale it, how does it taste and how does it linger? And there's different taste buds and sensories and things that come with the in and the out of your breath. And so I try to take it into another level like that. And so we are, there's little things that you can do and you can attribute to waste to do little samples, but it's not like back in the day where it's like, Hey, I want to get three grams of this, four grams of this, 10 grams of this. You're talking about, I was going to take this bullshit with this thing and these two things together, smell them together. <laughs> like, you know, like you're talking like, I would say that's an interesting point because if you're not already at that level, then how are you even able, you're not able to do the mixing, 
you know? Right. So let me ask you this. Let's take two strings. The banana foster that you mentioned right now. It's, it's three. It's three strings. Okay. Yeah. So each three of those strings, when broken down mechanically, the THC or THCA from each of those strains is the same. Is it, is it basically just the same? Like you could put it in a pile and it'd be the same or is there some nuances to it? So there are some nuances. THCA derived from the 70 or 90 U or say 70 to 120 U versus the THCA from the 40 U or THCA from say the one the 50 on up, you'll get a variances of different potency of THCA. It can range from 91% to 99%. And in that range of those different grades, that THCA will have different terpene profiles that'll still be left inherently in there anywhere from one and a half up to 3%. Okay. Because there are sesquiterpenes binding with raw phytocannabinoids, which is I felt very interesting because you get the stable sesquiterpene binding with the raw phytocannabinoid in its stable form. So both the THCA and the phyto and the uh, terpene and the ses- and the terpenes are now both in a stable format. So it's the nth degree of dried and cured, but preserved in such a way that it's super, 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 super pure. And so, um, and at that point, crystallized. I'm assuming it's basically crystallized in micro powder. Yeah. It's like a super, super, super micro powder. And so um, that, but it does make it interesting. Right. And so um, in that same process, while we do that, we then have another mechanical output, if you will, that would be all of the active THC, CBG, CBC, all of the uh, terpenes, monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes that didn't fall into that particular category and they will then be with uh, different types of, you know, flavonoids as well as waxes. And so we've been taking that, that rosin sauce or that live rosin sauce and actually further refining that sauce mechanically of any more lipids and waxes. Because when you press heads and make a rosin, some of the percentage of those trichome heads are melting going through the 25 micron bag and going into the particular rosin sauce. So we had to take that down to sub 15 or 10 micron. And you, as you start closing the micron gap, you can start playing mechanically with how you can clean that up. And so ultimately we'll take a rosin, I'll take like three rosins and then we'll take like, and make one big, one big batch of that rosin. I'll take half of that rosin apart. So in this particular banana fosters, we were focused on, I think, wedding cake, cookies and cream, banana OG, and made these live rosins from the 70 to the 149 U. We blended them together. I took 500 of those grams out, and then we mechanically deconstructed that into the purest raw cannabinoids and those subterpenes. So that was like our live snow. And then we took the live rosin sauce and we combined everything there. And so that was like all the fully active cannabinoids and all the terpenes. And as we took the waxes out, you start hitting like 20, you know, 20 something percent terpenes on the sauce oh. side. So when, so then the videos I was doing was saying, hey, this is what Taroni is 
I'm making, I'm putting the rosin, I'm putting the THCA that's been deconstructed, I'm putting the refined sauces back together. And really we're, we're creating a raw and an active blend back without any lipids or waxes. And it creates a more textured, sometimes, you know, depending on the color, like we made a peanut butter cup look like peanut butter, you know, there was like, cause by adding more sauce. And so this is like where we learned that making the, blending that back together creates this really crazy natural preservative. Um, so there's a thought behind the consistency for the consumer, like how long can I get this thing to last? And I want it to last for the time that you're going to dab through it. So Taroni was the first improvement on rosin. And then we started to realize that, like I said, okay, well, what are the next two outputs? Jelly and flan. And jelly is essentially almost all of the active THC and, and all of the monoterpenes that are captured in this process with some, you know, maybe 5%, very low percentage of full spectrum and a very low percentage of the flavonoids. And then the flan was the next graduation, which was the exact ratio of THC, THCA, and full spectrum terpenes, both monoterpenes and a little bit of the sesquiterpenes uh, in this particular ratio and this particular design to where now I feel very good about that particular uh, consistency. And the Taroni hit like 93. Um, the jelly hits like 96 to 98% purity. And the flan usually hits 98 to 99% purity. So it's about purity. It was about uh, consistency, user experience, and then how do I modulate that THC or raw THCA or you know combination full spectrum like in the Taroni as loud as possible on our endocannabinoid system, and that's that's what those three types of extracts are doing. You and I talked about this a little bit, and I want to make sure that I understood it correctly, but you're saying that you feel like some of these products maybe are still not understood enough. I don't know if, if that's the term. And so you've now also based on the feedback that you mentioned earlier that you get from people have started also producing live rosin. Yeah. So I feel like I skipped over the live rosin and my team with Pat and everybody we just came to the conclusion that maybe it's too much like Andy Warhol at this moment. And they're like, why don't you just release, let's just release the cold cure. So we had to switch up facilities. Uh, fortunate enough uh, in this last year, we switched up into three new facilities that we are uh, kind of flagship in, in LA. So we went from the Bay area down to LA and this gives us a lot more ability to spread our wings and do a lot uh, bigger projects and so um, you're going to see a lot more of live rosin because, you know, there's a certain, there's a niche for flan. We don't have a problem selling flan, um, but this is done in 500 gram batches. This is like super small scale, uber small scale uh, batches. So not everybody can A, access it and B, not everyone can afford it because it is $120 a gram. We don't see that, but like, you know, when... The state's taking 27% and distro and retailers, you know, you're tripling up after wholesale almost. And so it's like, like, it's not like the manufacturer or the producers making that. It's just whatever it starts with a 30, $35 gram can end up 85 to 90 a gram retail uh, from wholesale. 
a 40 to 45 dollar gram ends up being 110 to 120 you know what i mean and so like people aren't realizing that and they're like oh we're just like supercharging it's just not possible to make these super concentrates more affordable at the time and so what i do subscribe to is giving uh people an introduction to blue river in a way that they can pay the same price that they're paying for the three other competitors that are doing live rosin in California, which is roughly around 85 to $90 a gram. That's what the market is. And instead of doing a full spec like live rosin, we're offering like a 70 to 149 U. Um, sometimes if it's hyper good, there's like something you'll see that you'll see like a 90 to 149. But that's what I that's what I'm interested in putting out there under the brand moving forward in, in 2021, all operations, all states, um, all the things that you hear from what's going to happen with our company is focused on that particular baseline product. That's going to be our baseline. That's like the entry level to Blue River is a 70U149 cold care live rosin. Right. Like you said earlier, it's almost like a starting basis for people to see what can come of that with the other products that you guys are putting together in the lab. And, you know, on that note, I ask people this sometimes and because you're such a intelligent guy, but also so like well-rounded in cannabis and like, what, what is hashish? What is hashish at this point? What is hash? Dude, you drop all the great questions. (laughs) Seriously. This is going to disturb a lot of people. This is, this is my reality of what I live in. When you say, what is hash? EHO, unfortunately, is not hash. So I'm going to start there. What is not hash? Okay. That is butane honey oil that somehow has turned into butane hash oil. And a lot of people call their live resin and their butane extraction hash. And so that's not hash. Rosin is not hash. Flour rosin is not hash. CO2 is not hash. Ethanol is not hash. None of those things are hash. <laughs> That's real. And I'm just keeping it straight. And the, re- the reality of what hash is, and you can look up hashish volume one, hashish volume two, pick up a book, Google what hashish is, traditional hashish. Hashish, the trichome heads. It's the resin glands that have collected. Is Keef in the category of hash in your little grinder? A hundred percent is dry sift, static dry sift, resin glands that you see hashish. A hundred percent. Okay, now we got to that that part. If we could all subscribe to that's hashish. There's other types of hashish. There's ice water extraction that separates dried bud material. Those resin glands that have been rinsed and separated and filtered. That's also hashish. And live rosin, that just means the material is freshly frozen. The trichome heads are still done to ice water extraction. It's freeze-dried, so they have, they're eventually dry. They have dried, so it's not like they're not dried anymore because if they're still full of water, you wouldn't be able, you know, it's like it's a dried resin gland. And so that also is hashish. The moment we separate the resin gland from the plant, just that resin gland to me is hashish. And anything that's made from the oils, where we filter out the heads and anything that's made from oil 
that is coming from the plant is straight up oil. So basically, rosin would be equivalent to BHO. Solventless hash oil. That's why I call it SHO. It is a solventless hash oil. So do you consider yourself a hash maker, having answered that question? Do I consider myself a hash maker? I consider myself a hash maker that also knows how to productize the plant for all kinds of different medicinal and adult use purposes. But yes, I start as a hash maker first because I do make hash with dry sieve tech and I do make hash with ice water extraction tech because I'm preserving the resin glands. Do I sell hash? No. Okay, I, I sell products made from hash. Right. <laughs> like, but do I actually sell hash? No. Will you? Will I sell straight up ice melt? Um, like just the straight melts? I think this. I think when a system is controlled, similar to Colorado, where the grow and the retail and the extraction is done on site, and you can control the, the environment of that hash, or you have figured out how to transport and trust the other retailers and everybody to, and the consumer to keep the hash cold in its raw form, and they understand and they're fully educated and you can do it to the nth degree to where you're a consumer and you go home and you open your little cooler and you have six-star melt. I do feel like that is worth the pinnacle. To me, that's actually worth more and people don't really respect it enough to want to pay that much more, but it's worth a lot more. Six-star full melt hash from live in a jar, perfectly contained so that you can have it and then you can press it and you can dab it. That should be the, 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 top, of the, the top of the chart. You know what I mean? That's up there with the flan in the sense that it takes that much care and that much work side by side. So I think we kind of got backwards in the sense that I feel like when we're talking six-star hash, it's worth a lot more than what people are willing to pay for right now. And until when people pull it off the shelf and you can't get it and you can only get it on the black market, then it, like it's doing right now, then you all of a sudden see the value of it more and more. So Yeah, and again, off air, you know, shout out to ABR Farms. You were talking about some uh, Malibu Marsha, was it? Malibu Marsha. Yeah, and you were saying it was like, you know, yielding what, 3.4 and, and six star? Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. It was like, you know, it's like when everything comes together and I was asking ABR who they were because I wanted to make sure I had that information. And um, it's Masonic Seeds is the breeder of Malibu Marsha and it's a Wilson cross. So that's exotic genetics um, that bred this Malibu Marsha. And there is a, I guess it's an exotic genetic Masonic cross. Yep. Both of them understand, uh, both of them understand what it takes to uh, produce genetics for specifically ice water extraction. Yeah. Shout out Masonic. We've had him on before. He's a cool guy, interesting guy, but yeah, they're, they're definitely, like you mentioned earlier, there's people who are working on, on breeding the residents. So that brings up uh, another point for me where, you know, I try to keep it pretty positive, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are like, Tony, you're taking this really amazing 
sun-grown resin and, and taking it apart. And why, why do that type thing, you know? Yeah, so the good news is, like, moving forward, you'll see a 70% of everything and a majority of most other states will all be live rosin. So everyone will have the same thing. And then you'll get these select batches from that live rosin. So you'd be able to access the live rosin on the shelf if you want to see what the difference is and or you want to get something unique that causes blends. That's where we move to the next category. So I want to just say that you could you always have that flavor on the shelf. But when I get into these, like the Taroni is blends, like I'm always going to take one to three different varieties of the live rosin that's on the shelf. Because you might find yourself... Hey, I like this mimosa and I like the strawberry banana. And then when I combine the two together, well, that tastes really good. So I'm just taking it a step further and doing those types of combinations in these one-off blends in using new tech to make a better, purer product that you can ultimately dab at lower temperatures and, and use less of it. And so like we did this melon gelati, like crazy five-way jelly sauce that I did a one-off on and super head change. You know, like if you're going for like a monster head change from what rosin does, Taroni is going to be similar, just uniquely different textures, a little stronger. But if we want to go for a way different head change, the jelly is like an expression of that rosin in a way different effect with a more refined taste. So there's something in that flavor that like I grabbed and I was like, I want to really push this flavor and this effect as far as I can with how the active feeling would be. And then when you try flan, flan's going to be more like softer, more like uh, custardy, florally, like the room like smells like a bouquet. Um, it, has its, it has its unique differences. And so jellies like the gas, the fuel, the THC, the sweats, the, the dome hitting the dome and the flan is like very euphoric warming of the ears right away long 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 effects so there's just like different feelings and effects that come from them besides the textures and the purities that i'm trying to push um, from that baseline and so i think you'll see more baseline than you do the signature just for that reason but i'm not going to I'm still going to continue to do what I do. And there's a pretty good following out there that like understands it. And they're like excited for the next drop. Cause every time I drop, I'm trying to do something completely different than I did the last time. Yeah, that's cool. And you've talked about it, this idea of doing small batch. I think that's pretty cool. Where like, you know, you, you can only make so much of this unit based on, I guess what you have available to you, but it still always goes back to the idea of, the product that you're working with has to be good to begin with. And I've heard you talk about how you feel sun growing resin, uh, especially greenhouse. And I know some of the people that you work with, like we mentioned ABR and shout out to fully melted California as well. I know you guys have been, you know, working together for a while. So it, it's interesting in the fact that you're doing all this deconstruction and, and reassembling, but at the same time you're supporting small organic farmers that I don't know if otherwise could survive or not. Yeah. So that's my other thing is I seek out those guys that are into living soil, organic growing. They are smaller guys. They tend to be selectors 
of seeds and, and they care deeply, passionately about the plant. Some of them are also extractors, so it helps them find the right pheno and the right hunt for that. Um, and from a small batch perspective, I mean, that's kind of the thing is like, there's only so much flan that could come from a particular patch or a hundred pound batch. And so to even get, you know, once you get to that, when you're like, oh, wow, this plant could actually make it um, and we can get to that level, then it's like, by the time you need more of it, it's already gone because it was like a one-off. And so um, these 500 gram batches ends up being $6 plus tax to the consumer at a retail level. Right. And so when people are like, so, so of the 120, right off the bat, six is testing and just the COA testing add on the R and D you're spending $8 in testing because it's a small batch. And so unfortunately um, there's nothing we can do about it. The smaller batch and you'll look on the COA on the, the QR codes, we put them on there. It'll say like how many grams was produced. And so we're actually going to, with the smaller batches, we're actually going to try to like put, put that in there. We end up putting like holographic stickers in with like, different merchant prizes in, in the, the smaller batch, like higher end stuff. It's like you could win a $300 like custom Blue River Gordo, highly educated quartz spinner set in every flan batch. We don't publicize it. We don't put it on Instagram. It's a special moment where the dude's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah, just hit the QR code. And it makes it, it, makes it that more special and authentic. You know what I mean? Right. And so I try to do that. That's why I say it's my signature one-offs and I seek out these like uh, organic farmers and these people that are trying to make the best product. Um, and this, this uh, Malibu Marsha is an amazing variety, amazing resin. It was like, it's all six star. It's like, you got to take such smaller presses and go so much slower because it's just like crazy how, how well it works. And so, um, it's getting packaged up and it's like, you know, we do that one off, that one batch of even just the live rosin. So I'm going to be like 900 grams of this particular live rosin, but like it's that little one off exotic and it's done in just the live rosin. So I didn't do like some, I could have done a flan. I could have done something else, but you're right. Like some hash people will be like, oh, you ruined it. You're absolutely right. I'm not going to do things unless I have a lot of something. And I want to make sure that people that are out there know that if something comes along that's special, yes, you're right, I could make it into a Flan or Taroni, but we choose not to because we respect what the feedback we got. Give you, give it to you. If I can make a six-star live rosin from 90 to 149 and put it on the shelf and it's a smaller batch like that, 900 grams, like I feel people appreciate it more. It's more affordable. It's more accessible, you know? Yeah, but it's cool, man. I think, like I told you earlier, I think there's no right or wrong way about it. Uh, and I appreciate people pushing the envelope. And like you said, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have no problem selling your signature lines. And, and there's people that, like you said, I think the word is understand it, you know, and, and more people probably as people become educated will make the choice as to if it's for them or not, you know, so that's cool, man. Yeah, I feel like I think that it's some hash makers are stuck in their way. A lot of the other ones, I think, follow me and listen to things. And I hopefully it inspires them. I see a lot of guys out there like, hey, I've deconstructed and reassembled this. And whether they're doing the whole tech or not, it's still super cool to see because now they're getting it. Oh, by breaking this down and separating it again, you can start doing other things. People are making shapes. Like before you started mechanically separating rosin, like you're not able to make 
shapes. Like I was doing 3D coins in 2010. You know what I mean? Like we were doing crazy stuff with BHO and THCA and like doing stuff before even hash. And so, um, you know, it's like these textures and consistencies are dependent on the stability of the particular molecules. And that's why I'm deconstructing. That's why I think others will end up doing it because you want a consistent product. So I definitely will see people like, hey, I'll take some of this rosin sauce and put it back all over my live rosin. And that's where it starts. You know, people are like, oh, I made like a really, and it doesn't, it's not about color anymore. It's about the flavor and the experience. It's about what they're doing. I see that a lot. And so I think it's super cool. I just hope it inspires people to continue moving forward with it because I think that we need to all come together that are hash makers and, and those that are in the solventless division to push forward, hold the top shelf, hold strong, keep quality at the top. And um, so we could survive so that consumers have more of an option than just the solvent extraction. Yeah, I agree, man. So Tony, I know we've been talking for a long time. I appreciate it. I'll start winding it down. You know, I've, we talked a little bit about terpenes earlier, but I wanted to ask you about terpenes as a measurement tool, maybe, and as a way to be able to, I think I've heard you use the phrase footprint um, in regards to using the terpenes as a way to determine what's happening through a growth cycle and, and be able to provide that feedback as a hash maker, as a hash producer to the cultivator. So the terpene, when it's growing, if your resin heads are not plump, if you can't see the resin, when you hold a bud out and you look at that bud in the light, you should be able to see the pin heads. You should be able to see the resin heads. And that's a determination that that course of that plant was grown properly. It was, it was grown at 100%. It meets its full maximum capacity. And all those resin heads didn't get sprayed and didn't have pesticides and didn't go through anything. They were perfectly farmed. They are, they are perfect. There is nothing damaged. And that's hard to do, very hard to do. And people all struggle through their grows. And the terpenes and the cannabinoids and the trichome heads are your indication of how, of how you're doing that. And so from a measurement to have healthy terps and good terps, then it had to have a very healthy flowering cycle. And um, they are precious. And during the harvest, harvesting, whether it's live or dry, how you handle the material is the most important thing. The temperature of the material and how it's handled uh, is very important. Um, and then the type of extraction method you choose, gas, you know, solvent or uh, non-solvent um, will give you different advantages and disadvantages depending on what the outcome extract you're trying to make. And so um, at the end, when you finally are done, if you're in the solvents category, most live rosin is somewhere around 4.5% terpenes. Um, once you start getting a better selection, 70 to 149 or 90 to 149, uh, we've hit uh, 6.1% terpenes. And so the terpenes are an indication in the overall scale of what we're dealing with. So if we have out of 100% purity, you have 83% cannabinoids, 6% terpenes, you're at a 90%. You do have some flavonoids in there and you do have some fats in there and the rest of the 10%, but out of that, out of that 90%, if your terpenes are six, 
then you know the modulation effect of that of that cannabinoid base and if you know the terpene profile you can know the effect and essentially of the purity and higher terpenes means lower temperature so if you have 10% leftover numbers or 5% leftover numbers or in Flan's condition 1% leftover numbers what's that's what that's telling you is an indication of its viscosity and its vapor vapor point so higher terpenes higher purity equals much lower temperature for longer vaporization points. So that means I use less of it. And so the terpenes can be measured in its final extract to give you an indication of temperature. And compared to the overall potency, it can give you an indicator of the duration of that temperature. So as an example on this Puffco Pro, rosin's at, it gets no more than 525. It's off at 35. The Taroni's at like 500. It's off at like 40, 45 seconds. The flan is at 455. It goes to a minute 20. Then I give it another 10 second boost and a 10 second power up of, uh, of oil. And if I still see oil in it, I'll go another 10 seconds or another 20 seconds and sustain that temperature and maybe go another 10. And um, those are like my indicators, you know, for all of those types of things. Yeah, that's cool, especially with the smoking device. And again, something we talked about a little off air, and I've seen you post, um, you know, I <laughs> unfortunately not trying to rag on them, but my, my few experiences with Puffco haven't been great, although I know a lot of people have had great experiences with them. But the new units look interesting, and, and like you said, they, they look pretty precise in a lot of different senses. They're, they're giving people uh, the right tools to, to be able to try all these different types of concentrates. Yeah, I think like anything else, it's a tech company, right? And it's like Apple. Come on, you tell me you didn't buy Apple computers and Apple iPads and phones and didn't go through like what we call Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3. Like I went through all the gens of the towers and all these computers and I got off of them and then I was like, you know what? I came back to them because all tech companies like that. So you got to just kind of subscribe to one tech. You got to go through it. You got to voice your opinion, give the feedback. Just don't be an asshole about it. You know, like people are just so opinionated these days and they're so mean. It's like, if you have an opinion, contact somebody, find out if you're using everything correctly. If you're doing everything correctly, you did everything right, and it's not a user type of situation, then provide some good feedback to help those companies uh, get to the next level. And I think what they did was they took a lot of the pros and cons lot of the feedback over the years and like a good company should do you upgrade you should listen pivot and give the people what they want yeah and it looks like that's what they've done based on what everybody's saying so um i you know you talked about growing in 96 95 i think you said back in florida and i've heard you talk oh, i about- never i never said where i was oh sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> right, no, it's yeah. okay. No, it's okay. I, yeah. I was not growing in the state of Florida in 1996. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I pieced those two together uh, accidentally. But so, yeah, so you were growing in like 95, 96. And um, I've heard you mention uh, the Quiso hash. And I always like to bring up like random uh, hash references on the show. So talk a little bit about that quick wash ISO and, and what you were doing then. Oh, okay. This was like super old school. This was the first, that's funny you brought that up. 
first experience of like a concentrate, especially with like my brothers and family time when I did visit in Florida, uh, especially around the holidays, was this first time I made this hash, which was like taking all of the the like when you grinded up your bud and all of the like trichomes during the trimming process, you would get and you get this like kind of Keith consistency and then trying to get like 99%. Um, well, actually, the first rosin was taking those resin heads and then putting a bowl, a steel bowl on top of a pot that had water in it and boiling below it and getting the resin warm and then using a spoon and pressing it uh, like, a, like, a, like a spoon with a wooden dowel rod against the spoon to press against the um, sides of the, the bowl that was warm to actually get rosin and then use like a, a razor to get that oil. So that was like the first rosin, I feel, that we were doing back in the day. And it was very little. And it was like, if you got this, I'm talking tiny amount, you could scrape up. It was like, oh, and you would like smoke that. It was usually on like a knife or like a different, it wasn't like where we were at today. Or we put it in the volcano, right? You put it into right. like, a, like, a, like a vaporizer on top of something. But ultimately, it was like a pin. You'd light it. You'd put a cup on it and a straw. Really stupid stuff. And and the first time I was like to make like a, a quizzo or a quick wash was just you put all of that into a, a glass tray and you put 99% alcohol on it. And I would just like get it soaked and I would try to like lean the glass tray over and, and gently pull the alcohol off and then let it kind of cure out. And I put a little fan on it and I was just trying to get the alcohol to come off of it. And then I would take the hash, I'd repress it, and I kept trying to squeeze the alcohol. That's all I could do. Um, sometimes you put it in the sun and you play around with it, but that was like right. quick, that quick wash, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that's healthy for you and anyone should do that, but you're asking me what was going on in like the mid-90s, late for 90s sure. in my world. I was still doing shit that I'm you know, doing, but like not at that level. Yeah, for sure. And probably most people at that time were too, to be honest. Um, so let's contrast that with this new texture that you guys have, I don't know, have come out with or just happened, the foam. Talk to me a little bit about the foam. Phenomena, it's like a phenomena that happens. So when I, so now the foam is essentially just pure THCA, THC, and terpenes in a very particular ratio of those things together with no lipids or waxes. And what can happen is striking this type of oil in an up motion will cause the foam, it'll cause it to foam up. And I should have put the speaker of the volume on because it actually, you could hear it cracking. And it's like turning into, that's why I was calling it the foam. Because it sounds like if you take the thing like this and you spray it, like the spray foam from Home Depot, the spray creep stiff, like right. it starts off foam and then in a second gets hard and it's like crystal hard and can snap. And so um, it's a particular purity and consistency and ratio that I've discovered that I feel like is in the right sequencing that like has to be explored at a later date. And then very quickly after that, realizing that, wait a minute, I could get this in another form and we could, we can get like an even pure type of liquid, um, which is like the new clear jelly where that's going. So, um, I don't know what, I don't know what it's going to, where it's going, but I know there's some new shit that's in my brain, but I know that like people hate me, uh, in our production and all of our different spots to like throw what I call monkey wrenches into production. 
So I have to nowadays tippy-toe and be very methodical and think things out and not do a lot of R&D physically, but do it more mentally until I work it out and then come to like an R&D section and say, okay, hey, we're going to try this out for the next three days. And I devote my time to it. So it's like these, these things happen and then you kind of move on and you, and you tuck them. You know, like when I was first taking terpenes and cannabinoids and putting them into powders and then putting them into water was like 2017. And so it's like taking multiple variations and years to like get to the point where these strain specific powder rosin caps that are about to release is like the newest iteration and version of it. And so the foam is a texture and an ability to get to another level of purity. And um, it, it's basically like liquid flan because there's no flavonoids. It's just, it's completely euphoric, you know, this type of the flan, it, where it's at. Yeah, and I'm curious about this sequence that you talked about, not specifically about the sequence that you use to get to this particular, you know, ratio and texture, but overall, you know, is that the way to be able to protect your process? I think it's more about like, like uh, the end result, like Blue River Flan. I did trademark and as part of like the process and I do keep it close and it's not like it's well shared because it's been my baby that I've had to work on. And I feel like it's a level that you should try to get to as a hash maker. It's not something given to you. It's something that should be earned and it's like steps and evolution. And you, and it's like something you like people could probably get to it in multiple ways, but it's like a, a certain pinnacle point in that it's, I don't think that's something that should be handed to you. Go earn it and go learn it. Cause I had to. And the only way you will is by doing these different things. Cause you, it leads you to things. Right? You have to go to Roz and then you have to go to here, then you have to go to here. It's like steps that you have to take. You can't just jump from one to the other. You can't just go from, hey, I'm driving a taxi to, hey, I'm a race car driver. No offense. You know? Right. You've got to take stages to get to there. So. And, you know, I don't know if I'm wrong in this, but I feel like there's a misconception that Blue River is like a really kind of big company. And, I heard you or maybe saw something that you wrote where you said that, you know, after leaving Colorado, it wasn't like the best financial situation. Maybe you even said it today. So my point of bringing this up is, is this kind of like your small venture or is this something that like other people are involved in as well? So this is, uh, a small company and it is now family based. It's my wife and I, uh, my brother and a handful of other people that started um, Shane who started in the beginning doing terpenes and each little division that pops up Pat um, and, and, and Jason and Alex, there's a few people along the way that have come together that have helped open different doors and helped open different uh, divisions of the company that are a part of it. So if they started with me and a division has evolved, um, they kind of are a part of this company, but it's turned into more of like an IP company, a technology company, marketing, branding, 
um, uh, educational platform. We're able to integrate and do, you know, plug and play solventless products. So if you're looking for rosin or vapes or like capsules, sublinguals, topicals, uh, I'm licensing out the kind of playbook and the equipment and the technology to key strategic brands and players that have an interest and have the ability to access lots of product and lots of uh, patient and consumer bases. And so it's actually a really small company. Um, that's how we're founded and how we are. And so it's not part of any like large company. It's all self-funded, self-sacrificed, you know, on all of our parts, everybody from myself all the way through everyone that's in the company has, and they live and breathe this. And so we are all on this mission of providing the highest quality, most purest products in the solventless market, not just in, in inhalative products, but like things that you digest as well. So I'm using, I'm taking everything I've learned and putting all the technology into a house and I'm putting it into two of my personal brands that are at Base of Wellness and Blue River. I have my, my signature extracts. I have some flagship uh, manufacturing spots, one in, you know, like I said, in LA, we also will have one in Massachusetts. Um, so one on East coast and one on the, uh, the West coast and then other players you guys will probably hear and find out about the different ones. One in Florida that we were doing with true leave. Um, they started with dry sift. I felt like they needed to earn their way to live rosin. And so I said, you need to learn the resin and you know why? So we can learn the different resin profiles that are good for hash making. And so now they've spent a year doing that. We know which, which strains are good for that. They've got the skill level and now they're going to upgrade into live rosin. And now they've, they've spent that last year. So when I don't, it's like, like I said, you don't go from a cab driver to a race car driver. We start you off and then this is what we're doing. So we may integrate and help bigger companies and brands, but um, doesn't mean we're like some giant, huge company. You know, right. and it's not like there's like a hundred people working for us. You know, yeah, it it's sounds just, like a pretty small crew to be honest with you. It's pretty small crew, and you know that makes me even more curious how you deal with having, you know, a spot in California, a spot in Florida. I think the other day I heard even Massachusetts is coming up. So how do you do that as a small company and keep a quality standard up? Because I saw a post recently about Florida and how some of the difficulties of maybe keeping products at a certain level or at a certain uh, level post-purchase. Yeah. So I'll say that is part of our last year and learning how to do that. So we have a flagship, but then we license technology and COVID made it challenging because you can't visit. And so like different changes happen during COVID. So not being able to use the same consistent jars some jars being glass, some jars being porcelain, some jars having better lids and seals, the inconsistency of the jars. Uh, Florida went into smokables where there was testing. Um, and the test, and what that means is they had new testing requirements with fewer labs like in California. And something that would take three days turnaround now takes two to three weeks. So those testing facilities intake edibles and flowers and extracts. Now, if those testing facilities... Uh, you know, have to drive 10 hours, eight hours from facilities. They have to store things. Um, how they store rosin is important. 
And so it's an educational process on transport, distribution, testing facilities, all these third-party people. And it was, it was, I think when it started off, it was rough. And then it got really good. And then like they hit this testing wall. And then it was like, I feel like that really hurt uh, the products because it's like a perishable product that needs to be cared for. Three weeks sitting anywhere. And this happens in California, I notice. It'll go into COA, it'll go into distro. I see how it goes in. It looks amazing. And then like 85% of the retailers and transporters and everyone care for it all the way. And it looks amazing, sometimes even better. I'm like, wow, that looks better in the consumer's hand. And it's that same batch in a different location in the state in California looks like a little more yellow or a little different color or a different characteristic. That's the transport and the retail storage. That's individualized, and that's unfortunately our industry doesn't have a total standardization for that. And I feel like that section, in at least in the regulated model, it's not that people don't care. Once they're aware of it, they feel bad. They're like, "Oh my God, you're right," and they're like, "Okay, well, how do we fix it?" So, you know, these are growing pains in in in, in learning that. And before we go too big, too fast, because we also signed in Las Vegas and um, a lot of other states. And we said the same thing. I said, let's, let's grow organically and let's test out the worst conditions, the hot conditions, because we know things are great in cold weather. But these Florida and California are the worst conditions you could possibly have, humidity and heat. And so learn from our mistakes and, and the industry growing pains. And then when we figure this out, we're like, okay, this is what we could do with testing. Do you have to take the whole batch? Can you take 35 samples? Can these go, you know, like there's different things that you learn so that product doesn't touch hands like that and go through that. And it's the same thing with food. And if you explain that with freshly pressed raw juice and you explain that to regulators and transporters and testing labs, like, hey, this is raw juice. This is milk or this is like raw juice. This, and they're like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, this isn't a dry product. This is, this is it. And so it's important to do that because when you hit 65, 60 locations and you're doing this with live rosin, you better be on your A game no matter what jar you use. And so ultimately, I think that the support we've got down there has helped us. The feedback's helped us. They now have Calix jars. I like the jars. Um, they're now going to be transitioning to live rosin. And they're fully aware between the transport and now the testing holding facilities. And they're working through how they can get products in and out that I do feel that, you know, this kind of stuff is going to work itself out over the next three to six months. And I'd rather people focusing on this new particular strain or the effects or this terpene profile, like wait till we get to sway the opinions of people that don't like GMO, but love strawberry banana. You know, it's like, I can't wait till Florida gets exotics and different pr- profiles so that they can really compare and they get the dabbing and the technology down so they understand like the right temperature because they're used to hitting things like very hot, 600 degrees um, because they've been given shatter and they've been given crumble and different things that require a higher temperature. So um, it's exciting because it's like, like anything else, it's like growing pains, evolving, and then the challenges of COVID and the new regulations, it's like how much more challenging <laughs> hurdles can you possibly get over? And if you just take it on the chin and uh, absorb and try to figure out ways to make it better, 
that's all, all you can do. And I think that's part of maturing. And that allows us as a company to troubleshoot all these things now. So then look at it as a tech company. You know, if we have the SOPs from the time we harvest to the time the consumer has it and all the education of how to actually dab it, that whole evolution of all that information is how we can main, maintain being small, keep a high quality and expand that out to multiple territories. Right. Yeah. It sounds complicated, but I think if anybody can do it, it's you, dude. Well, <laughs> I got to try at least with the group. And, and um, I think that, you know, there's a, I think there's another wave, unfortunately coming um, where you thought like we're entering the industrial wave. Uh, and then once this thing gets legalized and it's federally legal, you're going to have another wave. And that other wave is going to be like the Google, the Amazon. You're going to see people get into the game that like, you're like, whoa, Amazon's in the game. You know what I mean? Like you're going to get into a whole, it's going to open up a whole different wave. And I don't even want to compete. I just want to be like the Nivea, like an Intel chip, with an, like Intivia, like a, a really high quality processing chip. Yeah, I don't right. want to be in the retail game. I don't want to be in the cultivation game. I want to be in like, how can I make tech, make products and, and make things that consumers want and go for the highest quality top shelf possible. That's like my, where my head's at. Yeah. And I think there'll always be a market for quality, man. I mean, and obviously uh, I think you believe that as well. So I have to ask just because we talked about it and I think it's a common misconception maybe is, What's the difference between what you guys do and uh, a rosin jam? Because some people seem to think that your products are essentially a version of rosin jam. Okay. So the jar tech. So if you take rosin and you whip it in a jar and you keep it cold, you get cold tech, like cold jar, cold, I'm sorry, cold cure, right? So that's one tech. If you take that rosin, that fresh pressed rosin, and you put it into a jar and you gently heat it from below, uh, you will see, and you never open that jar, and it's like seven days, and we're talking gentle heat from 90, could flash heat it at 115 or 120, then down to 90. You could put positive pressure or vac pressure on or negative pressure on that jar, and you let that sit. That's going to precipitate out crystallization, the little THCA. And that is a micro crystallization and let's, you know, crystallization happens, can happen. And you need some of those impurities, some of those waxes. Like I said, this is an advantage. Those little lipids and waxes and things that we were talking about earlier, this is good fats that help this precipitation happen and you'll get these little diamonds. And so um, you see other solventless companies define this as a, as a, as a rosin sauce right? Because that's what people know that because the diamond sauce, this is rosin sauce with little diamonds. Um, and some people take it a little further and they get it to crunchy and, and like more of like the Percy sauce that like 710 does. That's also another version. Some people take flour rosin or hash rosin, put it in the jar. They'll like decarb it, right? That, using that jar tech and, and then put, try to put that into a cart. And that's like a rosin cart. So all of those techs don't actually change the overall purity. 
and they change the consistency of what's already inherently in the base rosin. Until you start to mechanically separate that rosin then into those other categories mechanically, then you're not changing the purity, you're not changing the consistency, you're not changing that purity and the consistency at the same time. Right. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So once once we take rosin and we repress rosin, we're talking about, remember I kind of already hinted, it's like you're processing rosin at 25 micron. What happens at 15? What happens at 10? Okay, try different pressure, different time points. Try different ways of repressing. Try different devices. There's a million things that can happen from that information that I dropped. And so those things all clean up different levels. And so what I define as a rosin sauce, which I picked up on this, you start seeing me saying refined live rosin sauce, right? Because what I'm saying to you then is that I'm taking that rosin sauce and I'm actually refining out fats. Because that's really what it is. So I'm not a, a rosin sauce. I'm really a refined rosin sauce. Since the hash community has adapted that rosin sauce has to do with jar tech and has to do with the little diamonds and microcrystallization. And so I'm really more of a refined. And adding that word refined sometimes can be a scary thing because people see refined in the solvent world. But that's the only way to describe it. It is refined. We are refining live rosin sauce. We are increasing the terpenes without reintroducing terpenes by removing other impurities. And doing it all with mechanical separation. Correct. Correct. Nothing, nothing done weird to it. Now, the jelly sauce is, so we, now I take it a step further. The jelly sauce is when we do all that separation and then we just add active THC, sort of like the foam, uh, like sort of like that, where we say, okay, we've now done this whole uh, this whole thing, but we notice that like maybe this full spectrum sauce was 62%, the terpenes was 14%, and there's a lot of flavonoids in there. We're like, well, how do I get that to more like 93% overall? And so that is just us blending back in the solventless THC, the mechanically separated active THC at its highest, purest form back into the cart. So that's just like, it'll have a lower terpene, but a higher THC. And that's the only difference. Okay. Well, man, I could talk to you for hours probably, but uh, second to last question. If you had to name three of the companies that you find doing the most interesting type of work in solventless, who would those be? So I think at least in California and they're probably also in Colorado, I think 710 is doing a very good job with solventless. They do both. So that can confuse sometimes some people. They do BHO extraction. They do ice water extraction. But they actually stay true to both of those categories. And they're cultivating and developing genetics whole plant for extraction. So you have to give them props right away because not that many people vertically integrate just for extracts. They're not there trying to sell flowers. They're selling extracts. And they're selling those two categories. And they're trying to educate along the way. And they are developing different types of tech and different really cool things in smaller batches. They also sell hash, uh, different types of rosin and sauces and jams and things like this, and different consistencies. And so they're up there. I think um, right now, Kalia Extracts that's doing lots of full melt. You know, we mentioned fully melted. There's a, a groups out there that are, if they're dropping six star and fresh pressed rosin, 
then they're probably doing something right. And you should support them. And because that is a very, very, very dedicated, passionate, loving thing, and it's very hard to get. So don't just look for companies that sell six-star full melt and fresh press. That means they're doing something at the top level. They're helping you get to the the best they can of that resin, and that's what they're focusing on. And I think that's fantastic. And anyone doing that is good. Kali Extracts is is doing some of that. Frosty was doing some of that. Even Papa Select is doing really good live rosin. You know, there's some things out there, at least in California, that I've seen that are really good and proper. So um, there's a there's a handful of groups out there that are doing it pretty good too. You know. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, Six Star, like you said, it speaks for itself. You know, just getting getting there says says a lot. Your favorite hash to smoke in the favorite texture? Hash or are, are we talking about the oil? <laughs> Let's so, just say straight hash. So straight hash. Um, over all the years, hmm. Man, I want to say I know it was a long time ago when I was in Colorado. That Bruce Banner, I think we had a Bruce Banner 24 or 4. That thing was always six-star. Um, had a little bit of hints of strawberry and gas. I really liked that combo. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of really cool new things that have come up. But like, over, you know, there's bangers that have come out. Remember even when the Gorilla Glue came out, that was like a staple for a while. The GMOs kind of replaced the Gorilla Glue now. You know, things that are like gassy and melty are always hard to get. So I feel like it's just kind of where my heart goes towards. Like when I think of a real hash, I want something six star and I want something gassy and I want something just like fucking to the face. You know, I'm not really into the fruity. I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not looking a little hint of fruit, but like I want more gas when it comes to hash. Which is funny though, because your signature extracts are a lot of them yeah. sound like real fruit based. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. And a texture, I, I guess, a texture to the oil. I'm gonna have to go with flan on that. Our little our flan 3.0. There's like nothing that compares to the texture. Um, it's like custard that you can cut through that repools. It's taken a long time to get to that texture. Yeah, I bet, man. Will there always need to be a technician, craftsman, artist, whatever you want to call them, behind the hash? Always. Without, without doubt. Even when we look at all these different projects, we're now leaning towards packaging it that with a lead person from our side. Like we're going to train that person. We're going to have a lead. That person is going to live, breathe and eat that project, be local to that state and be part of our, our company and be like, you know, I'd rather train an army of 300 and then deploy one, one in each place, you know? So I think there's always, always. And I'm going to sneak in the last question. You've been in the business for a while if you had to give anybody advice based on your own experiences and business relationships and relationships in general in the cannabis community or world, what would that be? Depends on the age. So if you're young and just getting into the industry, 
from 20 to 30, absorb every position, everything that everyone says, but don't ever subscribe to only one thought and one way of being the way. Just absorb as much as you can in every position from growing to extracting to selling it to understanding it from both medical and adult use. Just absorb the articles, absorb the crafts, try to learn every position, humble yourself, put your head down and learn as much as you possibly can. Try not to grow an ego while doing it and then find your lane. Whatever that lane is, do that lane and then again for as, as hard as you can for a good five years and own that lane. And on your journey, if you think that you're one of those people that are inventive or imaginative or have so much to offer, don't necessarily offer all of it. You know, Keep certain things close to your heart. Keep certain things to your brain. Unless that's your family business, unless you're part of that business, you know, just perform at the expectation of what you are. If you're working for someone, if you like working for someone, you know, uh, find the right group and the right company that will accept your ideas, embrace you, not fire you. There's a lot of like, a lot of corporate brain raping along the way. People will take your ideas, they'll use you and they'll spit you out and they'll go to the next and to the next. So be careful who you, 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 you work for and, and what you're doing. Um, and ultimately, if you want to work for yourself, you know, you've got to keep that long-term picture as you work for people and learn from each thing. Don't burn bridges, uh, uh, build them, you know? And the more bridges you can build in the industry, they'll, you'll, you'll never know when or why, but they'll come back. And if you burn them all, you won't have anything to cross. Yeah. Good advice. Well, Tony, I am incredibly appreciative of your time. I know we talked for over our time allotment, but if you want to follow Tony at Blue River Terps, at Blue River Terps on Instagram, at Verzura2, am I saying Advisa? Advisa Wellness, is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, Advisa. 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 All right, cool. I wanted to get that right. And BlueRiverTerps.com. Tony, anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I appreciate it. My wife's head jumped in here at least three times. All right. What's yeah. Going on? <laughs> I appreciate All right, brother. I appreciate you, you, man. Thank you for the opportunity, man. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.